coming to you live from the Doomsday Bunker. Uh, I'm Jorge. I'm Savannah. And I'm Jem. Dr. Jem. Dr. Jem. <laughs> Welcome back to Just Plebs. There we go. Well, it's nice to have this is our special guest star that we've um, been. Oh, so he is a star. Well, no, according, I'm making fun of you, according <laughs> to your records. Because uh, you didn't like that word. No, he's a guest. Okay. No, no offense. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be flattered. So what are we talking about today with Dr. Jim? Well, I figured we would have this discussion. I remember a couple years ago, we've um, probably differed quite a bit on this topic. I would say pro- probably since I've known you. Um, and I feel like the college experience is sort of, not sort of, it is pushing that narrative of of um, climate change and where we stand and where we land on it and how we should be protecting. The problem is uh, I, I didn't, I think kind of the more eye-opening part, I didn't see anyone even remotely accept another side. It was sort of out of discussion. Uh, that was an early on conversation I had with professors was, well, let's just ignore the facts of, um, let, or let's, let's just get this straight. That's how he opened up his class. Let's just get this straight. Climate change is real. Um, there is enough scientific data. 97% of scientists believe in this notion that uh, our world's being affected through CO2 emissions. But there is, I never, I mean, this was an environmental science class that I was taking at that time. So no one ever really... Um, that, that's where they left it at. So to me, that was always the, okay, well, what's the other side? Um, yeah, because no one talks about it. No one talks about it. Nobody brings up the, the possibility of there being, of that all being wrong. Correct. Right. Or not completely correct. Yeah. Whatever. And especially with environmental science class. I mean, what else are they going to talk about if not climate change? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it it certainly was, uh, upsetting to say the least. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think we've always differed for a while of where my viewpoints were. And, and the more I got into the schooling of what environmental science was and and, and how there really, really wasn't a discussion for it. Um, and in fact, they're sort of now, at least in the business department from the school I came from, it's now, I think this upcoming year, mm-hmm. it'll be mandatory to have a climate change um, course. Oh, yeah. And I feel like that's across the board with all universities or the majority of them. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yeah, my university is the same thing. Right. Um, and it's it's not even. Yeah, there's no room. I mean, especially like in uh, TV shows, you know, it's always, oh, climate change. You know, mm-hmm. oh, the, the temperatures are rising, the waters are rising, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, no, no discussion of, hey, maybe that's not correct. And where did this even come from? Yeah. And here's, you know. Dr. Jim has been holding steady for how many years, would you say? Multiple years. I mean, probably decade. Yeah, probably a decade. More than that. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's been on my radar for quite a while, and I just nothing really added up. And what bothered me the most was I started hearing early reports about scientists being suppressed and um, not getting grants. You yeah. know, to say anything outside of the narrative. And mm-hmm. that was, and that bothered me. And so, you know, something's up when it comes down to money. Yeah, definitely. That's when you can first see it. Well, you brought <clears> to <throat> us a couple clips, not not just a couple. Well, so what is, so. Plethora. Yeah, but you have a an overarching thesis that we're kind of, we want to. It wanna, feels pretty obvious too, but about. yeah, go ahead and state it. 
Yeah. If you want to use your own words. Yeah, no, this is something that I, I thought about very seriously and wrote over a week and putting everything together in as concise as I could. And so my theory is the World Economic Forum, the United Nations are surrogates for the global elite, Mr. Globalist or whoever you want to call them and whatever that entity is, whose goal is a one world government. And we've all kind of heard about that agenda. Even Einstein started, was the first one to bring that up, but nothing constructive was done with that for a long time until maybe the 60s. So anyway, the goal is one world government for ultimate population control to prevent the Malthusian effect. And most of us have never heard that word. And the Malthusian effect is has to do with if you put bacteria in a Petri dish with a limited number of nutrients, the bacteria will gobble it up and they'll die. So it's kind of like almost like a parasitic organism, you know, eating itself out of nutrition. And so that's the presumption is that human beings will continue to use all the resources and gobble them up to their own demise. So, and I, and I go on to say climate is the perfect vehicle to accomplish this goal of one world government and climate propaganda through capture of scientific research, scientists, corruption of free elections, so they can direct things in their own way. Strong social messaging, promoting fear and shame, which always works. Mm -hmm. uh, fear and shame leading to citizens to accept these subversive policies designed to oppress all individual liberties. This increases isolation and censorship and produces economic impoverishment, essential to the feedback loop of more government dependence and less individual control. Mm -hmm. Well stated. Well, yeah. And it, I mean, it just as a way to kind of summarize all those ideas is why I did that, because this has been helpful for me also to kind of fine tune my ideas about what's going on and do research. And I, and I bring it to you guys, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful to have had the invitation to kind of put this out there. Um, <clears throat> I, am a, I am a scientist. I'm a physician. Um, got a history in chemistry. Um, I earned the Boy Scout Weather Merit Badge. <laughs> that counts for anything. It's enough credentials for our show. Right. <laughs> I flew airplanes. I piloted boats at ocean. Um, so I have an appreciation for kind of the all-encompassing thought. And I, there's a, a great quote that I, that I saw, and I just thought it were, was worthy of repeat just because it covers so many of the uh, propaganda machines that are out there currently. The quote is from H.L. Uh, Mencken. He was an American literary critic. He died in 1956. So the quote is, The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to the prevailing superstitions and tattoo taboos. <laughs> tattoos. <laughs> taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. I mean, and. I feel like that's the perfect quote for our show. <laughs> <laughs> Questioning everything. <laughs> that could be your mission statement. Yeah. That would be good. We should have one. Put it on the website. Mission statement for mission the show. Mission statement. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that. Well, uh, I mean, I, I feel like you've always, like, again, you've always held steadfast of what you believe in, uh, and I've always admired it. So um, you did bring a slew of, of uh, clips and not just your own words, right? Which. You'll help break down to some extent. Um, would you like to start off somewhere? That's typically yeah, how we run the well, show. Yeah, I think um, there are two, I guess, 
climate deniers, I guess, would be the modern lingo. Yeah. But these are two world-renowned, you know, known climate scientists who have a long history, you know, hundreds of publications who have contributed to the science of climatology. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can listen to them. Uh, Richard Lindzen was pretty notable. He had an interview with uh, Jordan Peterson in January of 2023. And, you know, he's got this paragraph of credentials, um, you know, Harvard, MIT. Um, his last appointment was uh, the professor of atmospheric sciences at MIT. And anyway, they go through the interview and it's if, you know, I think it's worth looking at the interview at a, as a whole, but it's like an hour and a half long. So I took excerpts out that I thought were pretty notable. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it's a nice overview would be like the first cliff and the summary of, of carbon dioxide, global warming. You know, it's a very simplistic model and no one has, you know, detected this water vapor feedback loop, which has been touted as being very important if there actually is any global warming, that you need water vapor. And water vapor has been the number one greenhouse gas aside from methane. Um, and CO2 plays such a small portion. Um, yeah, but that's the whole conversation is about CO2 and rising right. CO2 levels. So you don't really hear anything else about water vapor or methane or anything. <laughs> right. Well, and the Sultan uh, at the latest COP28, he mentioned the other, it's mu- largely due to the other gases that um, 80 times more effect from methane and other gases than carbon dioxide. So why would the conversation only be about carbon dioxide? Um, because that's the only thing you can control. I uh, mean, they are trying to control the cows with the <laughs> methane, right? Yeah. But CO2, I mean, think about all the carbon credit yeah. scam, right, mm-hmm. going on that, you know, to even move through your life going forward, you have to earn so many carbon credits if you want to travel across the ocean too many times in a year on an airplane Mm -hmm. or just travel around the discussion about 15-minute cities. I mean, it all has to do about control of individual liberties under the guise of carbon credits. Yeah. And so they have to have something to label. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, Richard Lindzen goes into that um, probably on that that first – clip devil's advocate all right so let's let's play devil's advocate here for a minute and so let me lay out the narrative and correct me if i've if i've got it wrong so first of all um the world at the moment is making a big deal out of climate and associating climate change with the greenhouse effect the trapping of heat Mm -hmm. and they're associating we're all associating the greenhouse effect with an increase in carbon dioxide and at least initially, we were associating that increase in climate, in carbon dioxide with, with global warming. Mm-hmm. And then we've added the proposition that, well, not only will there be warming, say, of up to a degree and a half or two degrees by the end of the century, uh, and, and maybe there's some variation in those predictions, but we're also looking at a system that's characterized by a variety of positive feedback loops. And those, the danger here is that a one and a half degree increase might not be catastrophic, but that that might trigger a sequence of cataclysmic events. We hear sometimes about the melting of the Greenland ice ice cap, for example, the rapid rise in sea level that would occur as a consequence, the increase of temperatures at the poles, the release of methane as a consequence, let's say, of 
the permafrost um, um, thawing, and then a runaway greenhouse effect because of that. And you evinced some skepticism, well, about the whole narrative, but also more particularly, and perhaps more importantly, you don't sound like you're a big fan of the idea of runaway positive feedback loops. Oh, well, there are a lot of things enmeshed in what you've said. Even the one and a half degree depends on the positive feedbacks. Otherwise, CO2 would be even less significant, much less significant. So those, you know, you assume that water vapor increases and amplifies it. But the whole picture is one-dimensional. So, you know, it's, you'd have to know the area where water vapor is important. And it goes through a mess of things. And we know now that that probably isn't occurring, even people who support the narrative. So you keep... That, in, that water vapor isn't amplifying carbon dioxide effects. Uh, if it is, it has to be considered as part of an infrared feedback and nobody has detected that that is actually positive. And so the only thing I, the, as we're going to continue on with these clips, the only thing I kept thinking about was um, much like McCullough with their, you know, sort of COVID dilemma that they've been experiencing during the pandemic, much of them were pretty, and are well-renowned scientists. And it's it, it was very fascinating to watch. Even, I, I haven't heard a, I heard one guy uh, from a different podcast a while ago, but he was more of a he more was in the business orientation of of um, oil and gas and, and climate, right? But a proper scientist with a lot of accolades and and well studied into the topic, um, coming in and and sort of you know saying, "Hey, this is not how you know almost being outcast," which we'll get into later, um, was very interesting to see with him as a because he I mean. As we go on with the clips, he sounds very, very... Obviously, he sounds he knows what he's doing or knows what he's saying. Um, so I, just to preface that... that to yeah, me, I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, continue on. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, he's basically talking about, you know, the, the positive feedback loop, and that was a scare, was this runaway global warming through positive feedback, you know, for all, all the systems, how they interact. Mm-hmm. And... But then, you know, and it was postulated water vapor would be a major part of the feedback, as would methane. But that's not been – no one's detected a water vapor feedback. Mm. So that kind of is interesting. That kind of checks one box off the list of an argument. Yeah. Um, that water vapor can't be a contributor? It's not been detected. Yeah. Okay. As, a, as a feedback. It's an important feedback to greenhouse Okay. So then that greenhouse so then you gas wouldn't affair. lead to the next – like right. cycle of events that could occur if it was detected right. that would suggest that there is disastrous effects happening. Right. Exactly. Okay. And, you know, and, and you were, you were talking earlier, Savannah, about um, uh, the evolution, why CO2? Mm-hmm. And I think um, there's a great little section that um, Professor Lenzen goes into about the history of they were hunting around for something to tag. And that and, was just the best one. <laughs> yeah. And um, that's uh, that CO2 and climate predictions clip that is um, it's pretty good for that because he talks about acid rain and, uh, you know, there's all those factors. Okay. What is it? You have them in brackets. Um, so I have CO2. Yeah, it's like the uh, 
uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, fourth clip. Okay. One, two, three, four. 27. Oh, CO2 and climate predictions. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. It's just they're all labeled a little differently. Exactly. It's the other one was, so you were on this early. There we go. Oh, well, you know, this issue actually began in the 60s. Mm-hmm, right. And um, it was clear there was a lot of hunting around for some environmental issue that would give people power on the energy se- over the energy sector. And so, you know, you had Earth Day in the early 60s. Earth Day. But I then you that. had global cooling. And the villain there right, yeah, was... That was the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was 60s and 70s and continued to the 70s. And the notion there is uh, you wanted to get rid of uh, coal-fired plants because they were polluting and creating sulfates that were reflecting light and causing global cooling. You also had acid rain at that time. Yeah. And again, get rid of the energy sector. And uh, both of those turn out to be duds. And the this global mean temperature metric, whatever it is, started increasing in the 70s. So they said, well, this won't go. And for a number of reasons, CO2 came into the issue. One of the reasons was the International Geophysical Year began a measurement program for CO2 at Mauna Loa Observatory, Hawaii. And this was uh, Charles Keeling, and it was promoted by a man called Roger Revelle, who was director at Scripps, which is an oceanographic institution in California. At any rate, they noticed CO2 has been increasing. And uh, the evidence is it's been increasing since the industrial era began, but serious levels, at least measurable, were being reached in the 50s, 60s, where it was perhaps (coughs) significant in terms of heating. Mm -hmm. Why did they start measuring it? Well, curiosity. Yeah, okay. I mean, so, so that was just, that was, they were just curious to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting chemical. It plays a role in the, I mean, photosynthesis. It's vital. We have, you know, like 40,000 parts per million in our breath. So, you know, it's an interesting substance. And part of the reason it's interesting is, of course, that it has infrared absorption. And so it plays a role in what is called the greenhouse effect. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's obvious. I mean, he knows the history and it's obvious there was some looking around for something to, I mean, maybe it started pretty innocent at first. I mean, they yeah, were just correct. curious, yeah. but now it's turned into something more. So why would, why get rid of the energy? Um, control. Companies? It's control of the energy sector. Okay. So by putting, so now you have a reason to be able to put regulations on them where you, you set what they can do and what they can't do based off of this accepted idea, society accepted idea that they need the regulations and restrictions. So, okay, by setting up this this idea that there's something, it's about taxes. It, oh, it's okay. about taxes. It's about money. 
It yeah. always is. I mean, it's always right? about money. Something else to tax. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> plus, tax. Yeah. And, you know, plus that noble idea of the Malthusian effect that, you know, these industries are not going to regulate themselves, so, so you know, not gobble up all it. the resources. And so somebody, mm-hmm. we have to do it because we're government and that's what we do. Oh, yeah. The, the, uh, the almighty government who only does best for everybody is <laughs> right. only everybody's interest in hand. Not, no, they don't have any interests of their own, of course, right? So they're the ones who need to be tasked with the responsibility of making sure everybody else can follow in line because left at their own devices, they would just it yeah, it's like it's like any governing agency or I mean, a government. It could be a bureaucracy of some f- sort. It has to justify its own existence as well, mm-hmm. right? So, EPA. I mean, we're the EPA. We have to have some. We have to show that we're doing something. We have to justify our existence. And well, the, the same way the NIH has to has to roll out a certain amount of vaccines. Yeah, 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 <laughs> or illnesses. Well, and there's, you know, at hospitals, I mean, there's the uh, Joint Commission on Accreditation for Hospitals and Healthcare Organizations, mm-hmm. and they have to justify their position, right? Mm-hmm. It costs the hospitals money to pay JACO right. to come and do an inspection, but they're required to have it. And so JACO has to always come out with new rec- new and improved recommendations. I mean, after all, what do they do? Just come and inspect? They always have to roll out something new to justify their existence. Yeah. And the people that are working for JACO, you know, they've got to justify their job by creating Creating new things and all mm-hmm. of it's just ridiculous and hardly any of it's based in real science or studies or it's just somebody's hunch that may be a better way to do it. But I mean if they don't have that accreditation then they can't operate. So what can they right. what could hospitals no really choice. do to oppose it? Yeah. They have no choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to go toward this? See control of energy in business? Um, I'm not sure which other clip you wanna Oh, I think I think um, yeah, there's uh, uh, the yeah, I think uh, control of the energy, but that's that's right. Okay, that would be a good a good spot. But more than that, if you are interested in controlling the energy sector, is the fact that no matter how clean you made the burning of fossil fuels, you would inevitably be left with the product of clean burning which was CO2. Oh, I see, I see. So this was one... This you couldn't get rid of it. Uh, pollutant, I see, I see. So Not no a pollutant. How clean the fossil fuel energy became, um, they were never going to get rid of carbon dioxide. Just like... So that was a good... Now, wh- why do you think there was attempts to... You, you talked about control of the energy sector. Why, why bring that into it? Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but it obviously is at the heart of industrial development. It's the heart of the prosperity of the West. You you had all these Malthusian movements, Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren, Mm -hmm. zero population Mm -hmm. growth. Um, And, you know, you see now, I mean, a kind of antipathy to the working middle class. You know, you begin to feel there were people who resented the fact that ordinary people were aspiring to live decently, have a car, own a house. And for some reason, I think that- warm. Yeah, right. Um, You know, have a dishwasher. (laughs) And I don't know why, but there there is almost an antipathy to this. Anyway. Yeah, and, you know, and so then you get into, 
you know, how they achieve this, you know, and so we're looking at the current problem or we're recognizing, I think, some dishonesty and propaganda. And I think um, I wanted to go back to what you started with, Savannah, was our, I think you said it, the 97% thing. Yeah. Jorge. That was Jorge said that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so uh, Dr. Lin Linzen goes into um, that whole thing. But the 97% has been this fallacy that's been propagated for some time now. It's been, it's been mutated. And it's truthfully, it's 97% of scientists and it's, it was a broad spectrum of scientists. I mean, they had master's degrees, bachelor's degrees. I mean, it was, you know, thousands of people and PhDs, obviously. A lot of climate, but they're not all climate scientists. They're all different kind of scientists. And so 97% agreed. The truth is that CO2 has a role in greenhouse, fat, uh, uh, greenhouse effect, but it has nothing to do with the connection to anthropogenic warming. And mm -hmm. that's where... The, this false connection was made with the 97% survey and the, and the idea that people are causing greenhouse warming. Through, through carbon their, production. Through carbon emissions. Emissions, yeah. There is no consensus on that. So, so carbon doesn't actually play an effect in that greenhouse effect where it could be. It's those other, like what you say to the, the water vapors and the methane. Those are the main contributors. There's that other, could there's other players, but it's a very, very co complex system. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think it'd be good to hear Lindzen's discussion about that in that 97% fallacy. So what? Quote. And they had their proceedings. And you would look at these old documents of ordinary, well, ordinary educated people at that time discussing whether <laughs> Rome when they had vineyards and so on and so on, was warmer than it is at their time. They're still in the Little Ice Age. And they were wondering if it was just reportage or there was something really different, had climate changed. They were doing sophisticated thinking about it, which has virtually disappeared from our world. We also talked about the 97% of scientists fallacy, and you pointed out that 97% of scientists likely agree that carbon dioxide plays a role in greenhouse warming phenomenon. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that 97% of scientists believe that there are tipping points built into the climate and that we're going to slide off the edge of an abyss within the next 100 years. Oh, no. Those are very different claims. No, and, and it's, you know, as I say, I mean... I was speaking at a group, I think, uh, Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. <coughs> They'd give me some recognition, and I decided that I would point out who opposed this narrative during the early 90s or the 90s. And it was leading figures in the field. Uh, and Bill Nye, the science man on TV or something, was saying that, you know... I'm sorry, he was so close, too. That's what made me giggle about this clip. It was Bill Nye the science guy. Yeah. <laughs> what did he say? B Bill Nye the guy, I think. No, hold on. No. no, he said the science guy. No, he didn't. Bill Nye the science man on... Science man. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so close. So close, sorry. He or something. Uh, was saying that, you know, uh, <coughs> these are just old people who... They'll die soon and will 
we won't have these objections. And there was some truth to that. I mean, you had directors of major mm -hmm. labs, directors of the Max Planck, people who are heading the European medium range weather forecasting, which is a premier group, all of them objecting to it. Uh, presidents of the National Academy and so on. But starting in the 90s with the takeover of major funding institutions and so on, um, you weren't going to get many younger people. And with that last bit that he's saying that you're hoping that they'll just die off the objectors. So then... It's <laughs> <laughs> one, one approach. Yeah. So then, and this, okay, so that would play, that would make sense then why colleges are pushing this climate change um, so heavily because that's the next generation of people, professionals, right, who would then be promoting that idea because, well, that's that's what they learned in university, right? Yeah. And so then the generation that's objecting it, they get smaller and smaller and this idea gets bigger and bigger and it gets taught to the younger generation and Jorge like what you were saying you had this idea in mind um when you were in college based off of what you're being told that climate change is real right mm -hmm. and it takes a lot to convince you otherwise because why would the majority of society be wrong why would they right. be pushing this idea that is not correct right and it's it's I mean then you have nobody objecting it because it's so ingrained because well, it wouldn't make sense as to why all these people are saying the wrong thing, but maybe they don't knowingly, they're not knowingly saying the wrong thing because they're also thinking the same well, thing. So well, all these other people told me, so it has to be right. So yeah, so that was my question because I, I know we've always had our uh, disagreements on on how how it's orchestrated, per se. And so your your presumption of this, and I feel like it makes the most sense is um, it. It's not that these people are so aware of what they're doing or saying. They're just, they've been programmed a certain format to really not think critically of, of the situation anymore. Um, I, yeah, I think there's some loss of critical thinking in right. our culture, you know, in the non-science community. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think people, even if you're not a climate scientist, I mean, if you were trained years ago to actually learn how to read a study and interpret sure. data, yeah. um, that's being lost as mm -hmm. well. I mean, you know, just like you could look at the COVID. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfect and, example. Yeah. And then you rely on these, these, um, Report so like the ninety seven percent number, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds legitimate because okay, there was a study done with scientists. Well, Why would I question that's incorrect? Out, right? But it's yeah, it's that it's being incorrectly interpreted. It's it's not accurate of what that number represents, and then everybody just like passes on this number and the idea of what that represents. But it's not it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like it's right. Right? Exactly. So then, well, I mean, in COVID, the vaccine, it was like 95% is safe and effective, right? Yeah. And that was the original New England Journal of Medicine article. Mm -hmm. And actually, that was a trick uh, because in, and it's been it's been brought out since that time. People are aware now. So there's something called a relative risk reduction, mm -hmm. which is what everybody's quoting, the 95%. Then there's the absolute risk reduction. Mm -hmm. Okay. That ain't 95%. <laughs> and so the relative risk reductions of 95% is, is relative to the control group oh. of those vaccinated and unvaccinated. Yeah. That the control group. And that's, that's 
Yeah, that's true. So there was like, it was only eight people. Oh, that's not the, enough. That's right. Not enough I mean, it was a study. It was a study, thing. total study of 4,200, and they had 2,300, I think, in the treatment arm, and mm-hmm. the rest were placebo. And so it was only eight people in the placebo group that got COVID that weren't vaccinated. Oh, which is and tiny. So, and they only had one that. in the in the control group, right? <laughs> so, I mean, it to statistically, it's ridiculous, but you can say the relative risk reduction was 95%, and then... Yeah. So, but if you look at the absolute risk reduction, it only reduced the, the vaccine only reduced the risk of COVID by 0.5%. Mm-hmm. Like it was unbelievably. So that, again, as you're stating that as an example of, it's the same trick over and over. Yeah. And I think they're doing the same on. thing this time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And nobody questions it, right? Because also they're not a scientist, the majority of people, so they wouldn't. And yeah, the skill of understanding how to read a study or how to, you know, look farther in and understanding what that number represents instead of just reiterating, you know, what what you're being told by and trusting also universities, professors, right, that maybe be might be doing the same thing where they just see this 97, they hear this is what it represents, but not digging in further and confirming. So yeah. then they're just passing on this information that's not completely correct or accurate to what it means. But yeah, exactly. So uh, and in terms, it feels like the outcome of if you if you don't listen or you don't follow along, uh, it, if I may jump in with a clip of one of yours that you, uh, that yeah. you sent to us, um, if you don't necessarily follow along, you will also receive, uh, some along the lines of firing or, mm-hmm. or some other, uh, punishment. punishment. Sure. So there we go with, with this clip. The more sad were the weathermen, <laughs> the, the people, weathermen. the media <laughs> forecasters and so on, who had a love of meteorology in many cases were very knowledgeable and uh, objected to this by and large. I would go on a train ride or something and meteorologists from the media would see me in there and say, thank you for that. But uh, the media have been firing people who don't attribute every weather event to climate. Right. And the meteorologists know this is nonsense, but they just, you know, are being pressured immensely. And we were lucky. Our jobs were not at issue. We had tenure and so on. Yeah. Uh, but younger people don't have that luxury. And that that's, you know, that's happened in every sector, it feels like, of not just uh, in sort of climate science or... It seems like scientists in general are getting the boot for differing opinions. Yeah, and uh, he says it again. I mean, he's talking about his students. You know, mm-hmm. you would never tell his students to oppose right. the narrative. Or they're not going to get grants. They're not going to survive. Right. And uh, do, um, do you want me to play grants? Yeah. Okay. And you know, the, well, and you know, of course, that the problem with writing grants is that they you tend to have to study trendy topics and you also can't be very daring. You have to take the next obvious step in some real sense and only in the approved direction. And so that whole granting system to me looked like, looked like something approximating the death of exploratory science. Well, that actually also evolved over time. 
When I entered academia, the National Science Foundation actually had very few staff. And they were eager to give out money. Do you have a comment? No, I'm not. Sh- oh. Is that the right clip? I think it's some. Well, keep going. We'll see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't that much demand for it. Uh, right. But as the administration grew, there was also, I mean, the administration plays a large role in the behavior of departments. Uh, young faculty today, I mean, are sunk if they don't get grants. Oh, yeah. And uh, when we get to climate, you don't get grants if you question the current narrative. So, so let, okay. So. Mm. Yeah, and that, you know, that's, uh, I think that's really an important, has a, a, a powerful effect on the prevailing knowledge about what we know. And what gets out there because, you know, I mean, the IPCC and, and COP, they're all dependent on the science, right? I mean, Correct. Sultan Jabbar, I mean, that's all he talked about. I trust and I believe in the scientist, you know, he's an engineer, PhD, and he um, – so they're really trusting the science. And so if you can if you can mutate the science or control the science, what's coming out, and you can do that with money. I mean, these young climatologists, you know, go to grad school and get their PhD, and they're all dependent on grants. And if you can control that, you know, by, well, if you submit a grant that says, you know, CO2 has nothing to do with global warming, I've got evidence, we're not going to fund you. We have control. Right. Yeah. And that's that's really concerning because that— Well, yeah, you're ch- you have nothing to base anything off of because you're changing the facts. I mean, it's, throughout history, you've always relied on science is correct. Science is evidence-based. It is a fact. If it's if a science says it's so, then it is so. Yeah. You, you don't question it, right? But now science is influenced by money, who is provided by people who have their own agendas, and they have the power to be able to set that influence. And now they— you know, and that sets everything. So because, right, yeah. everything's based off of those facts and those facts are incorrect. Now it just leads the stream of we're just benefiting whoever has the money and who has the power. Yeah, so the successful scientists are the ones who um, regurgitate what they want to hear, what the, yeah, grant, exactly. the grant givers want to hear. Yeah, yeah, which is why you never hear the opposing side because right. they're not. And if, you, and if you are the opposing side, you're a climate denier. Exactly. Right? You get labeled. And, and it's so fast. I mean, even if like... I mean, especially we saw that with COVID is that long list of credentials. These people have always been trusted that they know what they're talking about. And as soon as they oppose the majority or, you know, what society says is correct. Oh, you're wrong. Like yeah. all those years of research and um, knowledge is that's incorrect. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And, and the way and the way for these scientists to um, accommodate the narrative to get their money to come up with the results that the grant grantors want to hear is through these models. And mm-hmm. so their modeling it is has so many defects and all these climate projections are based on modeling. Mm-hmm. And there's a wonderful graph that I included that is uh, just shows the big, huge deviation from what's actually happened and you know, and what the model would have predicted and then going off into the future, how all the modeling lines diverge. And this is this is something that um, is really 
concerning because, you know, that the change is dramatic. There's I, this graph shows 68 modeling simulations. You're referring to the hockey stick? Uh, no, that's the Mills curve. Oh, that's the Mills curve. Uh, okay. It's further down here. Oh, that one. That thing, yeah. Anyway, the point there is modeling really uh, has a problem. And uh, the also, you know, uh, Linson talks about that and so does Curry. I mean, they both have, you know, the modeling, model projections are typically implausible, a lot of this. Uh, and Oh, what's being predicted is going to happen based <laughs> off of what is currently yeah. reported and, as happening? Yeah, and and down on Curry, okay. her interview, there's uh, let's see, model projections implausible. It's a, you know, when you talk about all the projections of extreme weather events, and we won't be able to grow wine in California, and crazy projections of sea level rise. All these projections were tied to that extreme emissions scenario, and. It, it's taken right, the community right. a long time to reject it. In fact, this extreme emissions scenario was still the most often, the most widely used in the sixth assessment report, which was published only like two years ago. So, I, I mean, th this is still pervasive, these excessively alarming projections of what could happen in the 21st century, mostly driven by implausible to impossible emission scenario, but also driven by climate models that are running too hot. Yeah. Yeah, and that's been a, a consistent theme across, you know, all the research I've been doing through uh, for a long time now. Uh, you, meant, you mentioned the hockey stick, the Mills mm -hmm. graph. Yep. And so this was uh, something that spawned some uh, climate gate. So everybody's got a gate after it, right? <laughs> we were too young for that. For Watergate? <laughs> climate gate. Climate gate? Yeah. That was in 09. Uh, oh. I'll play it. Yeah, because it's a good summary. Okay. Yeah. Well, but the issues of the hockey stick were not so much that. Um, the, the, the trigger, the hockey stick trigger important one is around 2000 right after that this was viewed by a so the hockey stick just uh not everybody may be familiar with sure, this thank so you. it's kind of a classic graph you might see on news shows and things but it looks like a handle of a hockey stick with the blade of the hockey stick going you know up and this represents temperature and so um it it was an alarming graph. I mean, you see it and you just, your gut reaction is, oh my God, where are we headed? You know, this thing's going to keep going up. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this thing got, got, got uncovered and yep. there's a lot behind it. Correct. The and hockey stick. When did it start, that, that dating? Like, that, well, the was it pre-industrial or was it? Yes, okay. it was. Yeah, because the, the blade of the hockey stick was actually <laughs> um, ob historical observed temperature data. Right. Mm -hmm. And then the handle was tree ring data. Right. Yes. So that was part of the image fraud was they combined the blade with the handle and they had no business being on the same graph because mm. they're from different sources. And Mills actually hid it in a footnote in the bottom of the paper. And, and nobody reads footnotes. Nobody <laughs> reads footnotes or ever put that together mm -hmm. except you'll hear it in this story. There was uh, one one guy who was suspicious because he was a old gold miner. And gold miners are very suspicious. Yeah. So you'll hear the story. <laughs> yeah. The trigger, the important one, is around 2000, 
right after that, this was viewed by a mining engineer, um, Steve McIntyre, said, hockey stick, hockey stick, I've seen these things. This is usually a con game trying to get somebody to buy mining stocks. He says, you know, then he got intrigued. Mm. He wanted to look at the data. So he asked for the data. They gave him some of it. And he and um, Ross McKittrick, uh, Canadian economics professor, um, took a look at this, and they found all sorts of errors, you know, mishandling of data, inappropriate statistical methods, on and on it goes. And man went after these guys big time rather than, you know, constructively trying to deal with <laughs> these criticisms. He went after these guys, and this turned into a pretty big flame war. And then McIntyre and McKittrick published two additional papers in 2005, and the controversy, you know, was just explosive. There were congressional hearings on this, and on and on it went. So it was this huge controversy, and these ClimateGate emails that were released in 2009 revealed all sorts of skullduggery, you know, trying to keep data away from McIntyre and McKittrick, um, trying to um, put pressure on journal editors not to publish their papers, and on and on it goes. And, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, and so this was revealed in ClimateGate. Nice. So there we go. And, and so I didn't, I didn't tell you about Judith Curry. So she's, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, we've mentioned climate denier a few times, but again, her, you know, her, her CV is like, you know, it's very long. Uh, she's a long history. She was at, um, university of Chicago. Um, and she was, uh, professor and former chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, and she's, you know, published, hundreds of studies and she has the qualifications to be talking about this. And I think, you know, it's, again, it's interesting that you, you again, see how they try to put roadblocks, you know, get away with the fraud and, you know, promoting things like this. So mm -hmm. Mills obviously got rewarded for publishing this right. fallacy and he got, he got discovered. It would have been pretty cool if you just, instead of like scientists, you would have actually just given us some, some random guy just, mm -hmm. Also, just reading off data, data points. He's like, "This is it. This is the <laughs> he, he yeah. truly is a denier." There's no. I'd <laughs> uh, actually be more accurate, <laughs> right? Yeah. There we go. So, okay, so they got caught, basically. Though, so that's what happened with ClimateGate is they got caught that their data is inaccurate, and then there was this whole controversy of them being able to report anything or take anything that they have reported as correct. So, has that? How do we know that that hasn't happened? hasn't kept happening with other sources. Well, too. we don't. Yeah. We don't, right? It's just I mean, that it's all being suppressed. Yeah. So like for example, the 97%, right? Mm -hmm. If it wasn't I mean I don't know how it was originally reported if it was just people just misread it or didn't take it or it no, must have I, been I think the wording just, of it. I think they just went by it. I think they read 97%. Yeah. It's whatever news source said it. They just chose to see whatever they wanted to see. Right, it's not then, necessarily how it was reported. Sure. Well, they never even bothered questioning what potentially what is that 97% made of. And then it's just going off of not even the original source, but the person who read it, who then told somebody else, and then they rely on that person, mm -hmm. and then they tell someone else versus going back to the original. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Telephone. Game yeah. telephone. Right. <laughs> Which never, yeah, it's never... It's never accurate, accurate in any yeah. way. Where yeah. to? Yeah, and so I, I don't know. I think um, 
that there there's a lot of other you know other uh scams that have gone on in that same regard um and you know there's been suppression of um people speaking out with their knowledge you know i mean just um you people have fear and uh they've been suppressed they've been shamed I mean, there's a lot of climate shame. If you speak out, how could you be against trying to save our earth, you know? Yeah. And the fact is that, you know, it's destructive to limit the amount of emissions for some of these third world countries. It's destructive for our country as well. And there's a lot that's been written about this, you know, especially um, African nations, you know, they're, they're opposing these carbon credits to be put on them because they can't get loans to capitalize on their natural resources by creating power plants and factories that can convert, you know, mined material um, because the United Nations says, no, you're not, you're not controlling your emissions. We're not going to give you the ability to produce anymore when in fact you know all of africa only produces less than five percent of global emissions mm -hmm. and yeah. it's really it's it's suppression and that's the whole it's all part of the entire agenda and or they're not in on the scam well they don't have enough power to be well sure yeah i mean they're, they're not given the ability to to participate and 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 if the carbon market is as it says it's supposed to be they should be filthy rich because their areas are so well protected and whatnot yeah but they're certainly not getting compensated even yeah. fairly right so that regardless of if it's factual or not yeah it's like george carlin said it's a big club and you ain't in it right totally <laughs> okay i'll play africa's not buying it and they're well um, yes leader go ahead no okay. go ahead yeah like, leaders in africa are quite outspoken they're on the front lines of being the victims of all this they refer to green colonialism energy apartheid you know that they're facing over this um global warming policies right and, right right and, and, right and they can't they can't get loans from development banks to build you know they have plenty of fossil natural gas coal a lot of fossil fuel resources in africa they can't get loans to build their own power plants, the only thing that they're able to do is sell their fuel to Europe. <laughs> so Europe is right. exploiting them doubly um, by taking their fuel, but not allowing, you know, it, it's politically incorrect for these banks to uh, fund the development of power plants. So the right, Africans right. So, can so develop their own economy. It, it, it's just evil, and I think green colonialism and energy apartheid are perfect descriptors for what's going on. Do you want me to segment into uh, climate oppression? Yeah, that's a great transition. oppression of the third uh, third world. Yeah. Well, it's it's just it's just it, again it it leaves me open mouthed in amazement that we in the developed world with our functional economies and our high level of luxury and security can say to developing worlds, the developing world, well, you know, we've got it pretty good here and we're probably willing to cut back a little bit, but you guys down there in the developing countries, you know, you should be pretty damn careful about your carbon output because, <laughs> you know, we've only got one planet. And so it isn't really obvious that any of you should have the same kind of benefits that we have. The planet can't sustain that level of luxury and security. And so we're just not going to let you have any money. We're not going to help you develop your economy so that you can benefit from the same industrial revolution that have 
that has, that has, that has enabled us to educate our children and to have plenty to eat and to be warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And then what's all even more preposterous is it's the very people who are constantly clamoring about the oppressive nature of Western culture who are foisting this very story on these developed countries. Yeah, the <coughs> irony is that even if the African nations were, were given, you know, the carbon credits or whatever and allowed to develop to where they want to be and where anyone expects them to be, at most, they would be emitting like five or 6% of global emissions. And this is for like a billion people in the population. So we're not talking about a lot of extra emissions to allow them to develop. I mean, it, it just makes absolutely no sense. And it, it's evil. It's absolutely. Okay. There you go. That was a clip. So we're basically summarizing this clip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, so they they don't even have like an alternative for them, like a plan saying, oh, no, you, we won't give you a loan, but you could do this instead as a way to promote your economy or build up your, your society in any way. Well, they way. also have them buy, uh, they'll import products from, from other countries, right? So yeah, they can't make it themselves. They can't so. make it themselves. So they'll buy solar panels from China. Yeah, or they're from Europe. But all they have to rely on is just selling their resource to a different country who has control over how much they'll buy it for. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if they have, they put restrictions on it, but they're so dependent on this other country purchasing what they have, that yeah, exactly, they're stuck. They can't do anything. So it's it okay. So yeah, control. Yeah, and how to how to prosper is to be able to sell stuff. I mean, that's yeah. I mean, because then they they would have control over their own everything i mean instead of relying on this other this country if they're able to produce it themselves then they could they could branch out more and they're not so dependent yeah 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 um, i do want to play that um ipcc dismisses the sun yeah clip. right um they don't even include the sun in there right <laughs> um i think we should do that and perhaps a, a couple more uh more of the science portion of of curry um and then we might head to the Sultan. But once we finish the curry portion, I'd like to take a little pee break. Yeah, certainly. Okay, that'd be fantastic. Um, all right, here we go. You know, this is trying to get all that modeled right, let alone making credible predictions into the future. We're not there. I mean, not even close to being there. Okay, and, and then if, if you once you get into the sun, it's even, you know, crazier. I mean, the IPCC has pretty much dismissed the role of the sun, you know, in the last 150 <laughs> years. But the interesting thing is that in the sixth assessment report, chapter six, they finally acknowledged the great uncertainty in the amount of solar forcing in the late 20th century. And this arises from, there was a gap in the s satellites measuring the sun output that occur at the time of the Challenger shuttle disaster, if you 1986. recall that. 1986. Um, and, and so one solar sensor was running out, and they were supposed to launch another one, but all the launches were put off for a number of years until they sorted out what was going on um, at NASA with the launches and everything. So there's this so-called gap, and depending on what was actually happening in that gap, you know, you can tune tune the solar variability to high variability or low variability. So all the climate models are being run with low solar variability forcing, but for the first time, 
chapter two in the observational chapter of the sixth assessment report acknowledged this issue that there is huge amount of variability. And this doesn't even factor in the so-called solar indirect effects in terms of there's a lot of, it's not just the heat from the sun. There's a lot of issues related to ultraviolet and stratosphere and cosmic rays and magnetic fields and all these other things that really aren't being factored in. They're at the forefront of research, but they're certainly not factored into the climate models. So there are so many uncertainties out there um, that affect certainly the projections of what might happen in the 21st century, but also our interpretation of what's been going on with the climate for the last hundred years ago and, and exactly what's been causing what. You know, and it's kind of it's kind of interesting over time. If you look, they started out with global warming, and then went to climate change, mm -hmm. and it's still climate change. But now it's being now they're blaming or trying to focus on extreme weather events. That yeah. extreme weather events are oh, they're the result of global warming, right? Mm -hmm. And it it's you know, so I mean, Curry, she goes, she talks about that a little bit that she really doesn't think there's a catastrophe looming out there that, you know. Well, especially if all of the projections and the modeling and that is not accurate. It's based, I mean, it seems like they're just picking and choosing what information to actually or what data points to include or look into, like the whole, mm. you know, not even including indirect solar effects. That seems pretty important if you're trying to set up projections or if you're trying to talk about solar effects, you would talk about direct and indirect and you would make sure that all the data is accurate and you consider if there's gaps, you know, the variability. That would make sense. That seems like a typical procedure for yeah. a, a study. Um, but I mean, <laughs> is it that they're, it has to, I mean, it has to come down to the grants, right? Is that it, they don't like, I don't know, like, why not report on indirect effects if you're going to be looking at solar in general or overall? Yeah, well, I think, you know, well, like she said, I mean, the, you know, the Challenger blew up and mm -hmm. so they couldn't launch any more observational satellites. Yeah. And so they had this gap. So they just kind of defaulted to the to the, the lowest rung and they just kind of kept it there. So there was no solar variability, you know, measurements made. Mm -hmm. And um, but we we know we have measurements, and we, I mean uh, variability. You know, we've got the sunspots. I mean, we've we've been having a lot of geomagnetic storms, mm -hmm. you know, especially lately, um, and and we've got some huge sunspots going on right now, and it it makes a big difference. The sun is really huge. There's a there's a climatologist that measures um, the troposphere temperature, and has actually found that uh, there's really no big change in it, but. It's a Russian lady. I don't have any clips, but this is from uh, a few years back. But anyway, I, I just it just looks like there's no real big catastrophe looming out there. I mean, I know Sultan Jabbar is spending a lot of his time with the 1.5 degrees Celsius, you know, rise in temperature that we mm -hmm. got to keep it to that. Um, but there's just no evidence that the temperature has really made much of a difference. The, the, the the science magazine Sputnik, which is a Russian uh, science journal, um, was also, I think, not too long ago, maybe uh, two weeks ago, uh, a giant sun hole bigger than 60 Earths spewing solar wind towards our planet. And some of this um, data that they're presenting was also explaining that it, there is an increase in temperature 
from the sun itself but this is pretty common i mean this is out this is a, an abnormal amount of uh solar radiation that they're getting but uh on the grand scheme of things this is pretty common so if you see all of a sudden an increase if for some reason this summer is hotter than normal well hotter than i mean how how Okay, unless you're referring to actual recorded temperatures, but the typical person doesn't remember. I mean, it oh, it feels well, that's warmer. that's the other thing. Yeah. yeah, it feels warmer than it did last year. Okay, well, it can fluctuate year to year, but I mean, if you're looking at it long term over a long range of years, you're not going to remember how it felt in 1973. The summer was oh, so much warmer or so much cooler than it is now. Like, that's all. The only thing you have to rely on is recorded temperatures. And again, the variability. I mean, there's different things that happen could, that could fluctuate it. And how big of a range are you looking at? I mean, like historically, do they, you know, what's the range that nature naturally fluctuates? You know, it goes up, it goes down. But what's the typical range? Is it hundreds of years that that fluctuation goes? Or is it 50 years? Like the smaller the range, the more extreme it's going to look. But is that to be expected or is that it's how you represent the information right right what are you trying to get across are you trying to promote this idea so then you narrow the range i don't know yeah i mean it's just where you where you set the windows on the data and yeah so you can make anything look like anything with whatever you um just how you decide to frame it mm -hmm. and you know like i mean i think in the next clip uh, the propaganda changed to extreme uh yeah. weather from Curry. That's a good one. But I want to point out something that I've got this newspaper article from the uh, what is the newspaper here? It's uh, from the Dexton Weekly Journal, 1903, October 22nd, 1903. It says, according to experts who have been studying the questions, the death and total extinction of the prehistoric glaciers is only a matter of time. In the Dauphine Alps, 17 main glaciers have been under close observation since 1890 and all have shrunk steadily during the period, some of them as much as 50 feet a day. And uh, so we're... And then, so Judith Curry will talk about, you know, that the weather, the extreme weather was way worse in the first half of yeah. uh, last century. And so, you know, we've the point is we've always had glaciers changing. And we've always had extreme weather events, and they're no worse now than they were before. Okay. And the other, sorry, well, so I would say that. sorry. And then the other thing is they were no worse than they were before. But the other thing is how much have we really recorded, right? I mean, how long is recorded history so you would know what the the typical you know what the weather events look like? I mean, yeah. I mean, we only have like what 150 years of recorded data, 200 years of recorded data for what events, and how accurately was it recorded? With it's observational stations today. around the country, right? Exactly, those aren't that old. And a lot of them started out in farm fields and ended up in a parking lot. In yeah, some city, they never moved, and they never moved. Them. So then it's reporting different data than it was because now it's a different environment, it's a different climate in that small area. Right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, anyway, yeah. I think that's a good spot. So I would say that those who object to the line of reasoning that you're putting forward, I believe, would make an argument analogous to the following. They would say, well, look, we have, despite all the objections on the measurement front, we have pretty good evidence that there's a warming trend. <coughs> we have reasonable evidence that at least a reasonable proportion of that is a consequence of anthropogenic activity, most particularly the production of carbon dioxide. 
The potential consequences of this could be apocalyptic 100 years down the road or 50 years down the road. Even with all those doubts in mind, it's incumbent upon us to take something like emergency action now so that we ameliorate this risk of apocalyptic transformation. And so this is just okay. obstructionist hand-waving your objections. And if you were moral and on board, you'd see that this issue is so serious and so apocalyptic that it's inappropriate to stand in the way of the amelioration. And so what, what do you think about that as a okay. counter proposition? Okay, the weakest part of their argument is whether all this is dangerous. Um, you know, the sea level rise is, you know, creeping up, you know, the, the ice cap, Greenland, Antarctic, you know, it changes from year to year with a little bit of melting, but there's no cat catastrophe looming on those fronts. And so they've turned to extreme weather Oh, global warming is calling, and I have to say, the hurricane and global warming first put this idea <laughs> into their head. Ah, you know, if we can show that even one degree can cause something bad, like more category five hurricanes, then we have something. So, so this started this whole trend of every extreme weather event is associated with um, human-caused global warming, which just isn't right, true. Right. And, and if you look back, and, and they, tend to go back to 1970 or 1950. Oh, this is the warmest year, the worst storm or the biggest drought or whatever since 1970, maybe since 1950. But if you look in um, to the first half of the 20th century, the weather was way worse, certainly in North America and over um, much of the globe also. Um, right now in the U.S. West, um, we're being assaulted by these atmospheric river events, bringing huge amounts of rain and snow, which is going to cause flooding. It's still snow yet. And, you know, this is horrible global warming and everything like that. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you go back to the winter of 1861 and 1862, 15 inches of rain fell wow. in central um, California over a period of a couple of months, which huge floods over a very widespread area that lasted for absolute months, okay? And paleoclimate evidence showed that these tend to happen about every 200 years or so, where you have this massive accumulation of these atmospheric rivers. So this is nothing at all unusual. Mm -hmm. So if you look back into the historical record, or better yet, the paleoclimate record, invariably you will find worse weather events. So, so that, yeah, and just to uh, augment that, I've got a graph in the USGS that tracks the each Christmas mm -hmm. through history. This goes back to, uh, 19, oh, I see on the graph, it's guy, it goes way back, uh, late 1800s. And anyway, the, the warmest Christmas in the U.S. in that time frame occurred in 1922. The coldest was 1983, and last year was the third coldest Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Wow. Which they're all about, yeah, 60 years? I mean, yeah. 40 years? Can't do math. What's 1980 to... Right. 2023. Yeah. 40 years. <laughs> yeah, 40 years, something like that. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and and she was talking about the the little ice age uh, from the in the eighteen sixties. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had, yeah, that was quite interesting stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially so earlier in the clip, they were talking about you know you have to take emergency action to pr- with the idea that if you have based on the projections, right, you have to take emergency action now to then prevent what could happen in the future. Um, but from that newspaper article from, was it 1903? Mm. Like it sounded like something that you would see today. Right. But that was a hundred years ago. I mean, so if there was already the same discussion happening then and how much of an emergency really is it today to do something? Well, and how how many people do you remember through the last few decades calling for end of the world. I mean, AOC is the most notable. She says we have 12 years left, you know. Yeah, but they said, you know, 2012 we were going to die, so. <laughs> yes, Al Gore was putting out predictions left and right and yeah. no ice caps, you know, flooding, no polar bears. Well, that even goes in line, too, with, like, the UN uh, carbon goals or carbon emission, you know, carbon-free goals, and that's been – that's been pushed back so many times over the years. I mean, there was like, was it 2020? There's 2016. Now it's like 2035. 2050. So, yeah, 2050. And it's because it's impossible. You can't, you can't be carbon free. Like it, from one of the earlier clubs that we listened to, that's yeah. it's an impossible goal. And that's why it keeps getting pushed back because you can't meet it. And so, okay, you know, we'll just keep pushing it back and making it, but like, how many times can you do that? <laughs> I would argue. Let's. Uh, did you have another curry one, or you want to? I, I just wanted to mention, like, because we're on this topic mm-hmm. quickly, that you know Greta Thunberg. We mm-hmm. all know darling Greta, and <laughs> she, she was. Yeah, she had tweeted that you know top climate scientists warning that climate change will wipe out all humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years. Yeah. And this was this was a clip from this was a tweet from 2018. Right. Yeah. So now. So time's up, Greta. Yeah. <laughs> and yep. <laughs> and we got all the other ones, you know, 1960s predicting 10 years, all the oil's going to go. 70s, yeah. another ice age in 10 years. 80s, acid rain will destroy crops in 10 years. And 1990s, ozone layer. That was always a big one. Yeah. Ozone did, layer be gone in 10 years. Yeah. And did any of that happen? No. No. None of it happened. So why does this, why is the message that's out today more likely than any of these that were, it's just another one of the Well, to people that have critical thinking skills, it's not more likely. It's not, in fact, (laughs) unlikely. They can see uh, patterns, pattern reading, right? Right. I hope we've done a... Well, I think we set up that, you know, it's the, the question of is climate change an issue mm-hmm. and f- <laughs> no <laughs> like is it really is it really worthy of all of this attention and this emergency action and all the regulations and restrictions that are being put on everybody right and the the upcoming conversation of carbon tax and carbon credits and or not even conversation i mean those are actually happening and so is it is it based on an accurate problem that affects everybody yeah and it doesn't sound like it is <laughs> well and it yeah it, it certainly feels the case but it's it's even funnier when you get um when you get the what is he uh he is the president of he's head of engineering for the eu or not the eu for the uae uh mr Sultan man himself oh right um, yeah he's for the um he's 
he is the Minister of Energy and Innovation for the UAE. And it's um, the, I got it written down here. What is the name of the oil company? <laughs> yeah, it's president of UAE Oil. <laughs> the whole <Yes>. thing. <laughs> that was hard. That was hard, yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, the whole enchilada. Yeah, and he's president of the, the COP28. Yes. Which, which, you know, is the Conference of the Parties, the United Nations. Right, for, it's such a funny title. Yeah, um, it's a long title. They also call it the UN Climate Change Convention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So um, I suppose we can get into what he's, been stating for a while uh pre and during top 28 which we covered i think a couple episodes ago which we'll go back into uh down the line mm-hmm. oh but okay. go ahead yeah well i i mean and i looked at his opening statement at cop 28 um as the president i guess he gets that luxury of being able to kind of <laughs> set the the tone mm-hmm. tender of it mm-hmm. and i mean he was he was pretty intense about this is our opportunity our inflection point it is a paradigm shift we got to keep the 1.5 degree limit on warming over the next uh, 10 years 40 he wanted to draw 43 percent 43 percent of global emissions by 2030 he wants to reduce emissions by 43 yeah, percent across wow. the world which is did they have a plan of how they were going to do that well that's that's kind of what they talked about during this conference and mm-hmm. A lot of it is just a lot of fundraising. Yeah. It's quite a bit. I may have $50 billion, I think. And um, to go towards just this. Well, I, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think it's, they're still in the planning phases. And, um, but you can imagine because of all the rhetoric that they do discuss, you know, about the carbon credits and, you know, um, limiting emissions, you know, through mandates and things like that. Although I don't, I guess United Nations has some control over, mm-hmm. you know, at least individual countries' governments and, you know, um, sort of providing a direction there. But it, <laughs> It's just uh, 43%, you know, is a lot. Pretty high, yeah. Pretty high amount. And and he did, and I mentioned before about methane and non, I mean, other non-CO2 gases are 80 times more damaging than CO2. But they're still trying to, because CO2 is the most uh, vulnerable to be taxed. It's the one thing they can grab onto, you know. And as, as Lindman said, it's not a matter of burning fuel cleaner because you do that, you can burn it the cleanest. I mean, what are you left with when you burn natural gas? You know, basically got water vapor and carbon dioxide. I mean, it's the yeah. ultimate clean burn. So they're guaranteed to always have CO2 emissions and even the cleanest of burning factories. <coughs> yeah, which is why you can't have a carbon-free goal with the UN. Which is a whole other direction, yeah. right? Can't talking worms. about is carbon dioxide bad? Of course mm-hmm. it isn't bad. No, it's needed. It's necessary <laughs> it's, for it, life. It exists naturally. It was here before we, like, it's always been here. Mm-hmm. You ha- you need it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. But it's just at what point is it, are they saying that it's, you know, a pollutant versus just a natural yeah. occurrence? Where would you like to start, Jim? I, I think the first one would probably be okay. I try to cut these down. He's kind of repetitive. Mm, yes. The uh, Sultan Al-Jabbar, COP28. Uh, the first one. Hold on, they're titled. Uh, I'm titling. I titled them under the page that you sent. Oh, COP twenty eight. Oh, forty three percent. No, no, no. I, I label them from the ones on top. Okay. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. And we're here because we very much believe and respect the science. 
It's a little low. 43% of global emissions must be reduced by 2030. That is 22 gigatons. We need to reduce global emissions 43%. That is 22 gigatons by 2030. And we need to make that happen to keep one 0.5 with a reach. And I have been crystal clear on the fact that that is a critical success factor if we want to keep 1.5 with a reach. The 1.5 thing is really funny to me because, it, I, I mean, well, I guess should, let's get done through Sultan's, but um, Mr. Sultan himself, but we'll, the 1.5 is always a conversation I hear in COP 28, 27, uh, any of the UN documents you read, 1.5 is the, the, the goal to reach uh, the Paris Accords the same way. Um, I do have a clip from Bill Gates that basically Completely deferred. Completely just contradicts or right. says that's we'll a play stupid that, number. We'll play that after we get through the Sultan stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, it's all based on these models. Yeah, yeah, which, as we stated, are not accurate. Right, right. Uh, okay, so where is your next one? Where are we going to? Well, I Captain? think that, yeah, I just I just go right into the next one, uh, which is uh, methane. Well, I was talking about methane, and yeah, and I tried to trim these down. He's a little long. We also brought together the U.S. and China in an unprecedented commitment to an economy-wide reduction of methane and other non-CO2 gases. These gases are over 80 times more damaging than CO2. Tackling methane will have massive near-term impact on keeping 1.5 within reach. And that's why I am putting it at the top of my agenda. In fact, it has been one of my top priorities as the COP presidency. And we made it be very high and a top priority for everyone. And that's why we're able to make progress. I am pleased to say that we have also mobilized over 57 billion U.S. dollars in new pledges and commitments only in the first four days. Sounds like they're trying to get rid of cows. <laughs> I think yeah. cows are on the chopping block. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean, if you want to, if that's the argument that it's cow burps and just get rid of all the cows, all the methane just produced go to the from there. Beyond beef. Yeah. Yeah. No replacements. But anyway, he makes these statements, and then. Uh, they go right into a question and answer, well, like eight minutes later, I think, into the opening talk. But um, the, there's a Q&A session. So the first question is regarding the, the Guardian, which is a British magazine. Uh, reports mm -hmm. there's no science behind the calls to cut fuels, and he had said that. And so we can play the clip, and then, I mean, it's, it's a minute-and-a-half clip. Okay. But there are literally... He's waffling around trying to sidestep this for six more minutes that I didn't include that you oh don't want to hear. Yeah. And please limit it to one short question um, in the interest of time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Lucy Cormack from the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia. Uh, Dr. Sultan, uh, if I may, reports in The Guardian um, of your comments that there is no science behind calls to cut fossil fuels. Do you maintain this and do you accept that language like this 
and talk of people living in caves could uh, contribute to a loss of public confidence in this COP outside of the negotiating bubble here on site? Let's talk delivery. Let's talk progress. Let's talk momentum and action. Let's, let's talk about facts on the ground. Let me just uh, say this about uh, the media reports uh, without naming anybody. Uh, the media reports on a conversation I had uh, with a person I have a great deal of respect for, and that is Mary Robinson. I have incredible respect uh, for Mary Robinson, uh, and I have uh, a great deal of respect for everything she has been able to accomplish and achieve uh, over the years. And yeah, that was like it. The same question. Oh, I know. No, no, it's the same clip. Yeah. That was the right timestamp. That sounded like she was asking a different question. No, that's. No. I mean, that's that's what it was labeled under. Oh. Yes. Well, he was just talking about respect for one person. So right. That's really what I did. That's what he spent. He, spends, oh. he spends six more minutes of stuff like that. I respect the science, and she's my colleague, and I'm so glad to have been invited to okay. do the speech and all that. And then yeah. finally, the IPC chair has to butt in. And kind of save him. Oh, yeah. yeah, he didn't have an answer for it. Okay. And this all stemmed from his pre-conference interview um, by Mary Robinson, uh, who's a British li literary journalist, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Mary Robinson is quite the feminist and, you know, is worried about, um, you know, women being oppressed because of climate change. change. Yeah. I don't know how you make that connection, so but she does and there may be something to it. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so she gets so. So anyways, Al-Jabbar gets kind of kind of beat around a little bit by Mary oh. and a couple of clips here. And uh, lead by example. You can lead by example. And like I said from the beginning, I accepted to come to this uh, to this meeting to have a sober and a mature uh, conversation. Uh, we do not. I'm not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. I am here factual, and I respect the science. And there is no science uh, out there, or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. And a phase down and a phase out of fossil fuel, in my view, is inevitable. It is essential, but we need to be real, serious, and pragmatic about it. Boy, talk about jargon. <laughs> yeah. He's, I know he's full of it. Yeah. No kidding. Wow. So, okay, so he said there's no science that supports that f the elimination of fossil fuels will contribute in any way to getting that 1.5%. So well, the, are keeping us from or, going above. Yeah. Right. So, okay. <laughs> so, so okay, so fossil fuels doesn't matter. <laughs> Apparently. Essentially. But then, so then how is he, okay, so then they have this 43% of carbon emissions that they want to get rid of, right? Right. Right. Where is that coming from then if it's if fossil fuels have no effect and that's been the main argument? Well, I mean, you think about the conflict of interest here, right? I mean, he's the president of a big oil company, a of huge, course, yeah. like, I don't know, it's like the third or fourth largest in the world. I mean, and so he's, I think his oil people put him in there for a reason to try to save his own industry in lieu of what the United Nations is trying to promote through well, COP. Yeah. So he's... I think it's my opinion that he's walking the line. Yeah. But he can't do it very well because he's misspeaking <laughs> on the way and he's getting nailed. 
And then, you know, even in the next next clip, you know, he does talk about, I mean, you know, if you wipe out, uh, you know, fossil fuel, you're going to affect socioeconomic development and all across the yeah, world. Yeah, he's trying to support. You can't get rid of the oil companies. Right. Of course, he's the president, right? He's got the board of directors who are like, hey, <laughs> you got to keep us in business, man. <laughs> and he's in the perfect position to do that by being the president of the, uh, the cop, right? Yeah. And so transition it from fossil fuels into some other thing that is the issue and then that's where we'll give the attention and just ignore the oil companies <laughs> well i mean fossil fuel is what it's allowed to evolve as a human race i mean if yeah. it wasn't for fuel we couldn't have done anything thanks exactly. sorry yeah <laughs> okay i'll play that clip okay false accusations i've been very clear about my position this is wrong and you're asking for a phase out of fossil fuel please help me show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio, for sustainable socio-economic development. Unless you want to take the world back into caves. Into caves. No. Show me. Yeah. I think we can. We have, we, we have can. eight billion. Women, give women me the will solution. be part of that. Give me the solution. What, what, what the obnoxious. Women the, will be a part of no, that. No, 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 but it's like it, the, the main issue of humanity and all of a sudden. But women will be a part of that. It's like, yeah, sure, it's man. 50% of the population, Jesus. yeah. <laughs> you talk about having women be involved. We in this small country <laughs> have included women more than any other country in the world. <laughs> 50% of our <laughs> parliament <laughs> is women. 33% of our cabinet is women. 77% of our Emirati women enroll in higher education after secondary school. Our women make up 64% of our university graduates. I'm sorry. Get your facts straight. We beat about 80% of our women. That's right. Anyway. We are inclusive. 95% of our women cook and clean. Sorry. All right. That was it. That was done. They're employed. In the home. In the home. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that's great. This this guy's uh, yeah. He it's kind of like that. Um, it's kind of like the uh, the was it direct the director of the Who uh, during the pandemic. Oh, where yeah. He, where he couldn't it, like his everything malfunctioned except what he was having to say, which was Taiwan was a country, and just slowly <laughs> he's like the internet's cutting out. I don't. But just trying to toe that line because he he has obligations to his to his higher ups to maintain that line of and they're conflicting in the position right. so what he's supposed to be or what the position would call for him to be promoting versus you know who's really <laughs> controlling what he has to say yeah he's just carrying out the orders yeah yeah, yeah he really Pedro's. is yeah uh so so anyway he, he's speaking out of both sides of his mouth obviously he's yeah. trying yeah. to walk some kind of you know corporate political line this reporter who's like seems like she's intent on finding some something that he says that says you know something anti-feminism or whatever right. so he's like trying to throw that we love women <laughs> also don't get rid of oil companies <laughs> by the way he put his foot in his mouth because you know the next day at the official opening ceremony you know in his speech i mean he he gets nailed at the q a because <laughs> everything he said going into it was pretty hard line 43 percent reduction and you yeah. know this methane and all it's really interesting well nonetheless the oil company still did a good job of being introduced into cop 28 it was it was like welcoming back your your long lost cousin 
which I found really interesting. So I do have a clip from uh, COP28 as well during that time frame. Oh. Uh, we are reusing some clips at this point, but that that's okay because it still goes in with the narrative that we're trying to portray. Um, so here is UN oil companies. Come and join us. Excellencies, friends, the diagnosis is clear. This is a bit long too. Success of the COP depends on the global stocktake prescribing a credible cure in three areas. First, drastically cutting emissions. Current policies would lead to an earth-scorching 3-degree temperature rise. So the global stocktake must set clear expectations for economy-wide national determined contributions presented by all countries that cover all greenhouse gases and align with 1.5 degree limits. The G20, which represents 80% of world's emissions, must lead. And I urge countries to speed up their net zero timelines to get there as close as possible to 2040 in developed countries and 2050 in emerging economies. The, the idea of pushing like to, to rapidly increase technology, even a even a left winger like Naomi Klein, Klein who is um, who's very much saying the world's going to burn, even stated in her own book, I forget, uh, she wrote a variety of climate change books, but um, the initial statement was that she's like even the technology that you're seeing, like I think Rogan and some others were like carbon capture is going to be a thing. It's like they're not even remotely close to it. It's a it's a prototype that's that may or may not work all these technologies to reduce carbon emissions is is pretty hard to achieve in in of itself it's so then it, how can you have these deadlines right these deadlines that keep changing anyways in time well and it's ridiculous i mean you look at the amount of co2 in the atmosphere now it's 400 parts <coughs> per million and plants die at less than 250 parts per million and right. we haven't been and i've got a great graph that i put in there somewhere that you know, shows the decline in CO2 and plus these carbon scrubbers, you know, don't add oxygen to the atmosphere. They take out CO2, but they don't replace it with oxygen right. like plants do. <laughs> <laughs> so then, and then reducing and, that number by 43%, I mean, right, that's what, not survivable. <laughs> that's <laughs> the oxygen. Borderline. Exactly. And oh. yeah. And also, you know, the greening of the earth. I mean, the, the increase in CO2, they claim there's an increase. But anyway, they're, is looking at the greening of the earth. I mean, it's just good for humankind, right? Good for starving countries, good for oxygen levels. And yeah, I, I think the scrubbers are really ridiculous. <laughs> I'll continue on with the clip. Yeah. We cannot save a burning planet via fire holes of fossil fuels. Fossil we must fools. accelerate a just equitable transition to renewables. The science is clear. The 1.5 degree limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels, <laughs> not reduce. <laughs> so, yeah, that's so what a contradiction, right? <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> not abate, phase out with a clear time frame aligned with 1.5 degrees. And the global stock tech must not only commit to that, it must also commit to triple renewables, double energy efficiency, and bring clean energy to all by 2030. These, these are such big words that they throw in. They're, 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 what is that called? It's, it's, a, it's a word that people just cling to. It's just the, the word to use, you know, right. renewable, Ren sustainable. Double, triple, well, triple renewable. Double energy efficiency. efficiency. What does that even mean? Right. <laughs> you can only be efficient, like, 
it's just improved efficiency. You can't be efficient twice. Like, well, I mean, you twice over. It's hard. I don't even. I don't understand. I've it's never heard that, that phrasing before, though. Mm. Double energy efficiency. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> double it. <laughs> Next year it'll be triple. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to double it. Yeah, double yeah. it. <laughs> the economics are clear. The global shift to renewables. So is certain of it too. The only question is how much heating our planet will endure before it happens. Intergovernmental panel on climate change is recommending ending our addiction to coal by 2030 in OECD countries and 2040 for the rest of the world. Our At the same time, mm-hmm. according to the International Energy Agency, the oil and gas industry accounts... I was listening that that coal plants, if done correctly, um, could work, but it it involves not just burning it. It's it's a lot of filtration systems that have to go through those through those um, exhaust fume up vents that they have. Yeah, and then how it, it's it's like multi layered filter systems. Yeah, they got of, scrubbers. Right. Yeah. 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 I I didn't quite understand so, that until how, recently. Uh, how what's the cost of that though? Is it then oh, it's worth probably like, not it, that much. It doesn't seem like it'd be that expensive to have a filter. Just like, retrofitting systems, right? Old coal plants to function properly makes yeah. a lot of sense. But, you know, nobody's even brought up nuclear. Right. I yeah, mean, sure. Mm-hmm. Which the, would be the ultimate. I mean, the <coughs> amount of energy contained in the, the volume mm-hmm. com- is leap years past right. well, any other source of energy. standards of, of, of how to handle catastrophes is, is doubled. <laughs> what I was going to say is the reason maybe a lot of people don't think of nuclear is because it's associated with catastrophe, right? Disaster. Right. And people, it's, oh, well, we don't want to repeat that. We're not necessarily going to repeat it. Just you know how many died? You know how many people died in Fukushima? Eight. Zero. Oh, zero. Right? Zero. Yeah. Zero. A small amount of people. No one. No one. Yeah. Smallest no one number you Smallest can get. Smallest number you can get. <laughs> zero. But all you hear about is well, the Chernobyl know, so. and I think three people died in Chernobyl. Yeah. I mean, there were cases of cancer, but you know, again, that was. I mean, Long there's cases time ago, of cancer and, for everything else, though, right. so it's like... And you compare it, so there have been comparisons done straight up to the uh, human risk of coal mining and burning coal, and far more people perish <laughs> from uh, coal mining and burning coal. Oh. Um, from, yes, and other um, oil field accidents uh-huh. far outweigh nuclear accidents. But you don't really and hear so about those. Every, yeah, every, there's just this sort of... You know, again, a folklore of nuclear is unsafe. But now we've got these small modular reactors mm-hmm. that are self-contained. And the idea is that they could be deposited in every every big city. Mm. And that could and, then uh, completely replace everything. And, and it can pre- completely replace everything. Yeah. Yeah. What would be the pushback to that, though? Like, why I think is- it's all about safety. But then we also have the limitation of uranium mining, which yeah. uranium mining has reached its limit uh, at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. Because of regulations and. But not because um, of like actual resource. Well, potentially too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because that Kazakhstan and Russia, you know, I mean, Kazakhstan probably has, um, you know, one of the hugest deposits of uranium, and you know, with so now there's legislation on the floor. Um, at the house uh, to which most we think is going to be passed mm-hmm. that limits Russian imports of uranium mm. to the U.S., which we need. Okay. And then also Putin's energy minister said, if this passes, we will not send you any uranium Meaning, okay. because there were exemptions built into the legislative bill. 
um, that you could exempt this nuclear facility here, you know, from this restriction of Russian uranium. But Putin said, no, you pass it on that. I don't don't care about the exemption. I'm not giving it to anybody. Okay, so then that option would be completely... Completely gone. Yeah, okay. And then uranium would be so much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, besides Russia, so there's no other place. I mean, they're, they're the biggest. I mean, there's but, uranium mined in Canada. Yeah, but it's um, limited. It's yeah. a lot smaller, so it would be it's more expensive to production. bring it in. Yeah. I hmm. mean, Cameco and uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, and there's a few others, just one down in uh, Nevada, Arizona mm-hmm. area. But okay. anyway, so yeah, okay. they don't alternate energy. They don't even want to talk it, about. Yeah, I'll wrap this clip up and then we'll move on to Bill Gates because they keep pushing that one point five. And if just, I, I want to show you that Bill Gates one because yeah. it's pretty funny. For just one percent of clean energy investments. So allow me to have a message for fossil fuel company leaders. Your old role is rapidly aging. Do not double down on an obsolete business model. Lead the. But he's the president of an oil company, so he's no, talking no, no, to himself. No, 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 no. This is this is this is not the, the Sultan? The, no, this no, is no, the this UN. Russian dude. No, no, no. This is the Spanish uh, UN oh. General Assembly. Oh, head chief. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, sorry. <laughs> he's part of who he's talking to. Though. No, 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 no. Oh. You're <laughs> just you're being racist right now. No, associating I, two accents. They're just using a lot of words. Disgusting. That I sound like the same guy. Using the resources you have available. Make no mistake, the road to climate sustainability is also the only viable pathway to economic sustainability of your companies in the future. And I urge governments to help industry make the right choice by regulating, legislating, putting a fair price on carbon, ending fossil fuel subsidies, and adopting a windfall tax on profits. I am curious, what is, there, what is the oil, com- oil company's interest to come into COP28? Because that to there try were, to mitigate was damage it, was it mitigating or, or to me it feels like they're going to get in on on this sort of carbon tax that uh, buying and buying trading carbon credits down the line keep yeah. your friends close keep your enemies closer I, I yeah guess they want to so. make sure they're part of the conversation right because it directly so. impacts them well anyway also the side deals <laughs> right okay so we'll do that and then we'll do the side deal oh, portion I, of things yeah, yeah that's that a fun one i don't think jim's heard those ones so. no okay so we'll play bill gates uh, the one completely this whole at least the hour and 47 we've spent on this it, it's all been 1.5 and, and the guy that that is should be advocating like for 1.5 as well as, as yeah the big driver one of the bigger drivers of it is went the other way and i'm just curious about your input and thoughts about it do you think we're going fast enough to actually hit the targets that were set out in the Paris Agreement? No, we won't hit hit uh, no the aspirational targets. Well, you can do the math on 1.5, uh, and you know, even 2.0 uh, isn't that likely. Now, fortunately, if you stay below three, a lot of the ill effects that people have heard about don't happen unless you really are irresponsible and let it get up to the the higher range. I mean, many people say it's innovation, but it's also with making sure that we don't waste energy in in the things that we have now. How are we doing on that? Like, again, if if you see all of the different components to trying to to stick to the Paris Agreement, is there any low-hanging fruit that we should be thinking about? Well, there's lots of things in energy efficiency, but that's primarily, you know, in rich countries where energy's been so cheap 
that you know we leave the lights on at night. We so we should turn off the lights, kill the heat. Yeah, save the planet. That's, yeah, that's Stop a dad's job. Right. Dad runs around yeah, turning off the lights. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, of course. But doing that, your small part to right. save the globe. But that one point five is just that always well, bothered me. Yeah, he, and <laughs> you questioned that a while ago. Where it's where okay, well, what is his benefit out of saying that? Well, also, where does that number come from? And he's saying the effects that could happen after 1.5 that uh -huh. a lot of people are fearing is and that's why it's setting the 1.5 as the limit won't well, happen so where is he getting his data from versus where everybody else is getting it from i hard, hard <laughs> to say where bill case gets it but i know the original 1.5 was based on modeling okay. and that after 1.5 that's where you get that additive effect yeah. of you know uh permafrost <laughs> thaws mm -hmm. you release methane that causes this cascade of events right so he's and saying the projections are they're completely wrong or the modeling is completely wrong and it, it's not going to happen it's right right it's saying he's, it's going to happen he's on another another plane yeah <laughs> so they can't even keep their story together no, that's my no. point right? right they couldn't yeah. keep it together with covid they can't keep it together with climate which change which tells you that it's, it's not disjointed it's a scam well, it's a scam I mean, it's, it's not factual the science is not based on anything that's true because if they can't even get the 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 facts correct right they can't agree on that yeah. <laughs> none of it is what can you really rely on we well, can right. rely on these guys making some side deals that's all oh and course. i'm kind of interested to see what side deals are going to come out of this because <laughs> love big, side, I deals. Love side deals they're, they're really interesting and they don't get as much coverage but cop is a place where people come together and make these side deals so for instance the pact to end deforestation by 2030 or the just energy transition partnerships where richer countries are paying developing countries like south africa to transition away from coal so these are really exciting things that go on yeah quite quite spectacular it's very there's, exciting they're very exciting mm -hmm. but this also answers their big question of why not the the big question of why not flying these politicians essentially over in you know using high-powered planes to to get them across instead of taking a sailboat like uh, miss thunberg herself oh yeah um why not just do it over zoom instead and they answered that question as well which i thought was oh yeah because there was discussion of yeah why why meet in one spot and then why not just do it online? hello there this is john Sorry. langridge from spain i think the fact that there is going to be yet another in-person climate summit is frankly an offensive outrage how many private jets or first class travel will there be how many guided tours? How many luxury hotels will be occupied? How much greenwashing of the host nation will there be? The whole thing should be done over Zoom. So it's really important, <laughs> number one. Point two, do you get more done in person? The example of this is COVID, right? The UN decided not to have a meeting during COVID. We all Zoom had happened by then and we knew that there were alternatives to it. So I'm, I remember saying to the UN, Look, why on earth don't you just have it on Zoom? Why are you delaying? Because there's a year lost of climate action that's lost. And they said, listen, you know, we do conferences all the time. That's basically what the UN does is get people together to talk about stuff. They say, we just know that you get more effective action if you've got people sitting face to face with each other. And frankly, the scale of the problem we're facing and the minute emissions caused by this, relatively speaking, because remember, we're talking about solving this massive global problem. This is a drop in the ocean, and this is one of the few opportunities the world has to really do something to turn the dial One of on the this. few opportunities that happens every year. Every year, yeah. <laughs> and the primary thing that the UN, what he said, is to get people together in these conferences. So it's not rare. <laughs> well, sure, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket, but on the grand scheme of things, it's it's still condescending to, to get together. And essentially what they're doing, they're 
partying out. I mean, they're they're going to Dubai. Exactly. Well, they're, maybe they're even, you know, coming up with business deals that have yeah. nothing to do with climate. No, exactly. or just, no, 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 no. That might it's be networking. Yeah, it's networking. Why so it's networking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Might be yeah. another reason why the oil companies want to be there, right? Is they want an opportunity. Because how often do they, like the presidents of oil companies get together all in one spot and they get to, they get to, <laughs> they get to chat and they get to the, be well, friendly. That's when they play golf on Sunday and they set the oil price, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another benefit for them. <laughs> Um, and so then, but what makes it all interesting was uh, NPR and, and most of these other more liberal networks uh, tend to be, I, I don't know, it always feels like they're behind on the times. Like they're just figuring out like, hey, what what the hell's going on? NPR? Yeah. And so th- there's just a really quick snippet. And then I think we'll dive away from this portion of the EU because I have a question about uh, insurance questions, I see, I guess. But, but just to kind of wrap up this um, freak out, it, to summarize it, it's just NPR. I'll just- well, can yeah, we, go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Are we, can we do that Veritas? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. That'd that, be great. That dovetails with that nicely, okay. too. Okay, that's fine. Um, sure, I'll do the NPR first because it's a bit, of, yeah. a bit of humor. Okay, so the leader of the UN is calling out fossil fuels as the poison roots of climate change. But this year's talks are hosted in Dubai, the oil-rich United Arab Emirates. You know, not to be mean, but how does that work? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely controversial. Um, the UAE has put an oil executive in charge of the climate meeting. And, you know, that person does have some control over what gets on the agenda, you know, how negotiations play out. So there's been some concern from climate activists, um, even from some scientists, about whether everyone is on the same page. Because the science is really clear. It's you know, not, yeah. fossil fuel use needs to decrease very, very quickly. Anyway, sorry. I'm just... No, I, I didn't. I didn't realize that uh, other people had made or uh, put out that observation. <laughs> put out That's, that connection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, let me get your uh, your. Well, yeah, this is Project Veritas, and uh, you know how they go undercover with a microphone. They yeah. get the guy drunk, and it's some pretty girl across <laughs> from him in a bar, right? And the guy just starts his ego takes over, and he's thinking about later that night, <laughs> and starts telling this girl everything, right? Mm-hmm. And so this guy is uh, Charlie Chester, the technical director at CNN. And um, it's quite amazing what he what he came out with. <laughs> Ooh, why don't you work? There you go. They were focused on getting Trump out of office. Chester also believes that in the current news cycle, there is, quote, COVID fatigue. Chester saying that CNN has a game plan to fix that fatigue. I think there's just like a COVID fatigue. So like whenever a news story comes up, they're going to latch onto it. They've already announced in her office that once the public is will be open to it, we're going to start focusing mainly on climate, um, uh, climate like global warming, and like that's going to be our next like um, I don't know like what's the word? Um, it's our. It's going to be our focus. Like, uh, like our, our focus was to get Trump out of office, right? Without saying it, that's what it was, right? So our next thing is going to be climate change awareness. What does that look like? I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I have a feeling it's just going to be like constantly showing videos of like decline and ice and weather warming up and like the effects it's having on the economy and and really talking about. The head of the network, like, just... Who's that? Is that Zucker? Zucker, yeah. I imagine that 
he's got his council and they've all like discussed like where they think um, so that's like the next pandemic like story like that will yeah that will will beat to death but that one's got longevity you know what I mean it's not like we can really milk this for all it's worth yeah. oh, it's, no there's so many years behind it I know there's a definitive ending to the pandemic or you know like It'll taper off to a point that it's you know not a problem anymore. Probably think it's going to take years, so they'll probably be able to milk that for quite a bit. You know? so. It's comforting that it's all planned out. At least we have. Yeah, correct. Well, you know what to you know what to predict, right? Right. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. Increase in news reports and showing storms. You know, bad weather. Yeah. Okay, it's because they wanted. They want it. They put Sweden, that together to Sweden show. pleasant fear tactics. Um, <laughs> just let you know you're you're gonna die at some point. Yeah, yeah or we we're just gonna got, tell you you're gonna. <laughs> we just got this Daily Mail science report on December 13th. Uh, now scientists are saying breathing is bad for the environment. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's the ultimate shame, right? <laughs> you shouldn't be breathing. Well, even that, in like uh, the I was just reading that the the Panamanian canal is there's a drought uh so therefore uh crossings will be restricted even more so but i didn't i I thought the canal was just uh salt like it's just the two oceans are you know being let through and then they use the 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 lock system to sort of you know lift and then push forward and then drain and but it connects two oceans right but they're using fresh water yeah it's it's river runoff right yeah i i Why not just use the oceans? <laughs> right there. It's, well, especially so much if more. they're rising, you don't have to worry about a drought, right? <laughs> I guess so. There won't ever be a low level. <laughs> I'm just perplexed by that. There's so much. And there's sea level rise, right? Is if, well, yeah. if the ocean's rising, we have plenty of water, anyways, on either side of the ocean. Well, you'd think. You think. <laughs> well, okay, but you got to think about the canal. <laughs> I, yeah, no, you it's. think about the canal. It's not just perfectly flat land. Oh, okay, sure. When they dug the canal. Right. So you actually had, uh, you have elevation and. Yeah. Elevation change as you go across that oh. little isthmus. Yeah. I see. Well, so I just take it flat the whole way through. Yeah, they can't, <laughs> can't do that. It'd be ditch. too much digging. So, <laughs> so they have to have locks and raise and lower the yeah. water yeah. level. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I feel like um, in my I kind I have some questions in regards to uh, some clips that I have. Unless there's something else you wanted to share. Nah. Okay. Um, so this was played at also this was also played at COP twenty eight and it was uh I call him or uh, King Charles. Um why did I like la- oh, I labeled him King Ray Charles. I don't know why I did. Uh, maybe I just thought of Ray Charles. Um but he it's a another longer clip, but he, he does specify something that that the only thing that I got specific out of this whole performance that he was doing was um an insurance claim. Um, like pushing, the, yeah. It was the only the thing policy. that was quite specific, and that was the opening ceremony too. I mean, there was Antonio Gutierrez, the head of the UN Council, mm-hmm. but then it was it was uh, King Charles coming in with a very specific plan. Um, so I, I would like to play it and see, get your thoughts on it. Mm. This is a long as you gather, sorry. ladies and gentlemen, for these critical negotiations. The hope of the world rests on the decisions you must take. I can only encourage you to consider some practical questions which might inform the task ahead of you. Firstly, how can our multilateral organizations, 
which were established at a different time for different challenges, be strengthened for the crisis we face? How can we bring together our public, private, philanthropic and NGO sectors ever more effectively so that they all play their part in delivering climate action, each complementing the unique strengths of the others? Public finance alone will never be sufficient, but with the private sector firmly at the table and a better, fairer international financial system, combined with the innovative use of risk reduction tools like first loss risk guarantees. That's the only thing specific he goes into. That, and he'll go into it more because he's going to specify how much that sector will need, essentially. We could mobilize the trillions of dollars we need. How many? The- just, just guess. Just guess how many trillions. 20? Mm. Annually. Oh, annually? Annually. Five, two, somewhere okay. in there. The order of four and a half to five trillion oh. a year to drive the transformation we need. That's that's the whole U.S. GDP. If every not, year. Every year. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Just can't get it. Secondly, how can we ensure that finance flows to those developments most essential to a sustainable future and away from practices that make our world more dangerous across every industry in every part of the world. I have, for instance, been heartened by some of the steps taken by parts of the insurance sector, which plays such a vital role in incentivizing more sustainable approaches and providing an invaluable source of investment to reduce the risks we face. Thirdly, how can we accelerate innovation and the deployment of renewable energy? of clean technology and other green alternatives to move decisively towards investment in this vital transition across all industries. For instance, how can we increase investments in regenerative agriculture, which can be a nature-positive carbon sink? What incentives are necessary? And how can those which have a perverse impact be eliminated with all due speed? Okay, I'm going to pause there because it's another minute of just him going off uh, yeah. carbon credits, essentially. <laughs> okay, so first loss policy. This is an Investopedia. Uh, first loss policy is a type of property insurance policy that provides only partial insurance. In the event of a claim, the policyholder agrees to accept an amount less than the full value of damaged or destroyed or stolen property. In return, the insurer agrees to not penalize the policyholder for underinsuring their goods or property. For example, by not raising rates or renewal uh, uh, premiums. Uh, key takeaways, first loss policy, the type of property. Okay, so that's for summary. An example of this, though, was um, uh, considered as an example of a typical situation in which this type of insurance might be in effect if the store owner held $2.5 million worth of goods in their store and figured that uh, most they could see lose at one time due to theft or burglary would be approximately $50,000. They might obtain a first loss policy for that amount. In the event that the store was burglarized, burglarized, the owner lost more than $125,000 worth of stock. They would only be compensated $50,000 for the loss as stated under the first loss policy. I just, I, I don't, th- th- I mean, out of all the oil company and, and sort of other jargon that they're spitting out, just 
that's the only thing they touched on, and then they didn't talk about it for the so rest. So what of does that have to do though with um like he's talking about the insurance com insurance companies have well, a huge influence. Well, we've we've and read about those climate refugees, right? I mean that that have come from from these uh, uh, the, these uh, South Pacific islands that you know their islands have slowly divested into just water. There's nothing left. Mm -hmm. um, I think they blame a lot of it on hurricane like uh, Hurricane Sandy or the one that happened in Houston. Um, those are also considered climate change losses as well but just in so terms then it would be covered by insurance it, right as a climate change event or a but the insurance company will come out better right exactly. with that first loss guarantee so place. what is that because yeah. i remember i texted you this question how did yeah. that relate to obamacare at that time for unless you were just joking no no i wasn't because i think <laughs> you know how it basically we all ended up with higher deductibles right. i mean you know, yeah. that was yeah. ultimately what it was. And that that's kind of how this translates too. except on, on like a yearly, you know, your premium right. on a yearly basis on this first loss guarantee. It doesn't really change very much, mm -hmm. you know, but in in the end, if you have a claim, then you're ended up you just end up paying more. And that's the same. I, I equate it the same way as Obamacare because we we had a paradigm shift in insurance our healthcare cost, and even in the presence of insurance, mm -hmm. so jacking up premiums to a to a cause that may or may, or may not or is probably more is not accurate at all, right? Just to soak up more more money from us, essentially. Well, yeah, yeah. But and our deductibles used to be two hundred fifty dollars, right, mm -hmm. for health insurance, right? Wow, and our cost is a lot lower, but now you've got like a five thousand dollar deductible mm -hmm. oftentimes wow. and then our premiums are jacked up so i don't know this sounds like another one of those scams and i'm not i wouldn't be surprised if obama himself's behind it seven trillion is a <laughs> <laughs> five trillion is a lot though annually five trillion is a lot yeah. annually that's you know i mean we're running a trillion dollar deficit right. every year that's only going to get worse we only collect Two and a half to three trillion in income taxes right. in the U.S. Oh you know our debt is thirty-three trillion. <laughs> Un unfunded liabilities are well over one hundred and twenty trillion or some ungodly number. I don't oh know gosh. what it is now, yeah. but yeah, that's a lot of money. It takes a lot of money printing to do that to yeah. accomplish that. But why would King yeah. Charles be pushing this or promoting it well, or that, bring it up? I mean, if I, you want to, if you want to go into like the the Klaus Schwabs of the world, that's. I mean, I think he's just the headsman, you know, the sure, spokesperson, spokeshole of it. This guy is is part of. I mean, the, everyone that's in that conference is part of that group. Sure, there's elite group that he needs the one that's orchestrating. Like, look at this. This is what we're gonna do. Mm -hmm. This is the perfect ideal. How to suck more money out. And, and restrict them at the same time. And and I mm -hmm. think it goes back to my original premise and what I wrote. I mean, I, I really think one world government oppression of the population. I mean, King, I mean, uh, Prince Charles, uh, King Charles, at spoke to Klaus Schwab, gave an address at the World Economic Forum, and he said the green recovery represents an unprecedented opportunity to rethink and reset the ways in which we live. We need a shift in our economic model that places the world's transition to net zero. That um, and and so basically they're just they're putting it out there that you know that's their goal is to yeah. change how we lived it's a, a shift in everything and so we're already seeing a lot of the that fruit come out 
um, in regards to, um, you know, the idea about carbon credits and then, you know, I think it's going to go further. I mean, even London, you know, is restricting even traffic in the center of London. They're charging a fee and, you know, they want you to walk and, yeah, there's people that can't walk, right? I mean, sometimes it's impractical, but no, King Charles is on board with all that and, Prince Andrew even had that famous 1988 interview where he he said there's too many people on the planet. And the interviewer asked, well, how do we fix that? He said, can't you guess? <laughs> <laughs> how do you get rid of people? I yeah, don't know. <laughs> well, we can starve them to death by restricting cattle and agriculture and access yeah. to food and oppressing their countries. Yeah. You know. I mean, that does make sense because climate affects every single... I mean, he even said every industry, every area of life, it's affected by this idea of climate change, right? Everything has well, regulations, And now it seems like they're trying to get the insurance companies on board as well. Well, because insurance companies can set what they will cover, what they won't cover. Mm. I mean, that affects what you can and can't do. It, beyond just, you know, governmental regulations or UN restrictions or whatever but sure. it's they it have even, a lot of influence it could even life. force company or ownership of of properties that are not no longer deemable safe because of climate change exactly uh, and then you know they'll have to sell their lot for pennies of the dollar essentially and it's it's all about money and, and if it's fabricated right mm-hmm. then, and you never know there might be some spontaneous horrible fire that would break out right in some town that nobody wanted to sell to <laughs> correct people, yes right right yeah, but that would never happen. That right? would never happen. But. <laughs> um, well, I got to pick up some clips from uh, just because I watched some a couple fellas talk about how the world are carbon credits. They're they're going to be the carbon credit um, brokers essentially. Um, when you listen to them, that that's that is what they're doing. Is they're trying to grab the farmers and find the market for carbon credits. Do, do you understand carbon credits before I get into it or should I play something for you? I think so. It's you just get like is it like tax credits if you do well uh, if the, you restrict your on the person on the you know the, you with the plebes of the world it, it is just we'll buy carbon credits to, to sort of if you want to cook with propane or whatever that, that oh only, so you're only given this but this is more of, of an right but this is more of an with. industrial sense of manufacturing so you yeah. emit carbon dioxide but you obviously you're emitting too much so you have to purchase these offsets yeah. from other countries yeah, such so as africa right? right so maybe <laughs> yeah. i'll maybe i'll play a clip how about that just so that way we're we're all on the same page um the i think this might be the one. Are we filming? okay cool so climate change okay. rhetoric has obviously there's been a great groundswell of it. You know, you could say that like we're really turning the corner, and carbon pricing just comes up again and again and again as something we have to do. Okay. <laughs> Post-its in the wind. Can you hear me? I'm good. This is the World Bank, by the way, trying to. Um, they're breaking down what carbon credits are, just so I'm clear. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've been getting involved in the whole climate <laughs> world. <laughs> they're kind of jumped into it all. Carbon pricing is like. Everyone is talking about carbon pricing. One of the things that became very, very clear to me is that we're trying to throw money and technology at the symptoms of climate change. We will be throwing finance at, this, at, at adaptation and mitigation, but adaptation and mitigation comes after the fact. It comes after the disease has already taken hold. So they're throwing good money into a leaky system. So you're saying that pricing carbon is the solution for the cause. 
for the cause of climate change, exactly. One of the quickest ways to accelerate everybody's solutions is to correct the global economy so that it pushes carbon-based resources out of it. The, the tricky thing about carbon dioxide is that you can't see it. And it's global, it's dispersed everywhere. So the taxpayers are paying those costs, the cost of extreme weather events, such as Hurricane Sandy. People have to pay that cost in their health and the cost of healthcare while they're being caused by these carbon dioxide emissions from burning fossil fuels. And so if you take the external costs that they're creating that aren't in the price and you put them in the price, then they actually reflect their true cost to society. And then people will start choosing cleaner like renewables or cleaner fuels and you'll get a much faster switch. Every country has an economy and so every country has an opportunity to implement a carbon pricing instrument that is going to be a benefit to them. Eventually we can what we call harmonize those systems and link them. There's two different versions of carbon pricing, quantity or price. Quantity is the government creates a certain amount of permits that caps the amount of emissions allowed. Companies who want to emit have to have a permit, so they have to either buy these permits from the government at an initial auction, or sometimes they're given to them at the initial kind of introduction. And then they trade these permits between companies. Cap and trade. And trade. Wow. It's in the title. So it creates this kind of new market of trading more it's kind of like market. a commodities market yeah but it's it still, would just be the bigger but it's still a new market I mean, if you want to think about it this way this is like the real estate market in 08 of, of cdos mm -hmm. uh, they're just buying and selling debt in, in various forms in, yeah, in a new so instrument what would that lead tool. to economically would that that would well it's a it's a, a fake market issue. no exactly <laughs> it's based off, it's not real you know you can't well, see carbon so <laughs> but carbon eco economically the poor and the middle class suffer the most exactly under the under any model, but as, you know, especially this one. And it would I mean, it would make it even more, you know, more of an issue than it is now. Like another, I was I had a question. I mean, I know modeling is not always accurate, but have there been models or projections of what would happen if carbon de carbon emissions were yes. too low, carbon levels? Oh, too low. Yeah. Um. No. Because like I don't know about that. Yeah. Because what would happen? So okay. So say. You know the forty-three percent. Say that that actually happens. Well, what happens to the the environment, <laughs> economically, society, everything? What happens well, if you actually at those low levels of emissions or carbon? In CO two levels. Yeah, the CO two levels. CO2. What happens? But you, we know that was it two two twenty five hundred, or what was it so for when plants die? Two hundred. Yeah, below two hundred fifty parts per million. Yeah. So what happens if you're at three hundred? You know, you're just on the cusp. Get, yeah, of that it's, level. I'm sure it's a gra graduated kind of process. I mean, greenhouses pump CO two into the greenhouse to try to get to a thousand parts per million. Uh huh. I mean, so their plants do better. So yeah. we eat better food. All the the food that you eat that's in a greenhouse. CO2 is good. It's essential for life. <laughs> yeah, so what happens if it... I mean, this well, whole plant push life for it dies. low. Yeah. yeah, and that's that's bound to affect everything, right? <laughs> we can't function if we don't have food. And that doesn't even matter how economics are doing or how, um, you know, what anything. If you don't have food, you can't eat. Um, no. Plus, you'd have to go around the house breathing on your house plants, right, yeah. to keep them alive. <laughs> you have to have, like, a little keep plant a little, with you at all times. Yeah. Instead of an oxygen tank, it's just a little plant. <laughs> All right.
I'll wrap this up. <laughs> in that the price goes up and down depending on supplier demand. So the thing about that method is that there's a, there's a strong certainty in terms of how many emissions will be allowed, but there's a lot of uncertainty about the price. So it's hard for businesses to build that into their business model. So the other method is a price method where you tax the carbon-based fuel at the source. So when it comes out of the ground or is imported, you know, comes across the border, and then that makes that fuel more expensive. In that case, there's a lot of certainty about the price, but uncertainty about emissions because there's no cap on how many carbon emissions we'll still be creating. But the idea is that inevitably they'll go down because companies will inevitably want to find cheaper ways of doing it and carbon-based so fuels will become for, more... for certain that it, they would go down. Well, yeah, they're, they're not promising that these manufacturers no, it's will just become... Hopefully. Well, no, they're, they're... So, like, if a manufacturer is... Um, still emitting high amounts of CO2. Yeah. And they're not being efficient. They can just, regardless if they're still spewing a lot of CO2 into the air, mm-hmm. they'll offset it by purchasing more and more carbon credits, right? So, so they're just, it's just getting fined. They're not exactly be being efficient either. They're not doubling as... Uh, they or, just have to pay more. Right. They're not tripling renewables and, and they're then, not doubling efficiency. And they'll pass that on to the customer. Right. Yeah, and they'll pass it again. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. And then what if you're somebody who relies quite heavily on <laughs> wood-burning stove? for right. heat in the winter. Right. Right. You know, I mean, they're coming for us. Yeah. You know, we are the carbon they want to reduce. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We are the carbon. Humans. Yeah. Ugh. So, yeah. No, it, it was. Yeah. A- if you get rid of 43% of humans, <laughs> there you go. That's your, that's your number. You're good. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> uh, I got, I think that's, I mean, kind of, I feel like that's, you understand that portion of what carbon credits are. Um, mm-hmm. I guess the last thing I'll play is these farmer credits because they're a bit annoyed. Like, there's, there's a, there's a, they're a bit annoyed of how regulation is not coming in too quickly. It's not coming in fast enough for them. Regulation for them? They for want them. regulation? Well, yeah, because right now it's an open market and they're not allowed to trade yet. Carbon credits. Oh, so they want it to happen so they can start so, trading? Yeah, it's disgusting. It's really annoying to watch. Well, how would that benefit them, though? Because they're the brokers. The these, farmers? These, no. No, oh, the okay. brokers are the ones that are making money. The farmer. Oh, of course, that's their that's their job. So they want yeah. to start, so they can start doing their job. Yes, I understand. Okay. Or the job they want to have created. Okay. Yes, I'll play the clip. <laughs> Get going. Okay, I thought you were talking about farmers. No, Fine. no, no. There's a, there's a, a renewed focus voluntarily um, by big organizations and individuals as well. That you know what cool. they they don't have to wait. We don't have to wait for government to tell us what to do in order to make a, an impact, a positive impact on, um, you know, on, on climate. They need to do it now. They, 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 they want to make the, they want to make the, the positive change to the world today. Well, of course, because then they're not going to get paid. Right. <laughs> Completely agree. Yeah. I mean, again, and this is not, it is becoming less of a political issue as well. I think that there's a recognition um, across, you know, the entire political spectrum that we need to do something about this and doing so in a voluntary capacity in a way that mobilizes the private sector alongside, you know, individuals um, and the government to, to, to come together and, and find a practical solution uh, is, is very inspiring. It, it, it really is. Who, who is this? Right. <laughs> right. That's a great question. Th- these two are just two babbling idiots oh. that, that are in the carbon market trade okay. and they're, oh, they're starting their, in, their, their business essentially. One is working with the farmers on 
essentially categorizing their the amount they're worth based on biodiversity and a variety of other and how much pollutants they let out and you know how much cattle they own and whatnot. The other side is is the broker side um, of of when when we'll be allowed to to sell and, and trade carbon credits. And so, are they calculating how much CO two <coughs> what they plant? takes out of the atmosphere no no and it's I, you there's know, nothing it's there's a, no no there's it's a three-hour like interview then yeah. back and forth and i only got through an hour of it because it was just it got annoying to listen to towards the oh, end. i'm sure yeah, yeah it's i mean it's a minute long and i got one more after this but it just it's them babbling about how they're not there's nothing prepared and they want to help and it's a bit it's a bit of virtue signaling towards the end of well like, of course it sounds like it's just oh well there's a huge problem and we're here to solve it right. nobody else has thought about this right. and here we have the solution they're just they're just everyone. one of many brokers that'll emerge and quite frankly we should do that instead maybe we should just dump this whole podcast <laughs> and just start selling carbon credits that might be the way it to seems go seems a little more lucrative it seems very lucrative <laughs> it's more lucrative than this i'm in the hole <laughs> and you know what's what's interesting um you know, what's what's interesting there is that when it comes to, you know, the the politics of it, of course, here in, in the United States, just a, a couple of days ago, the U.S. Senate passed the Growing Climate Solutions Act. There's overwhelming bipartisan support, you know, not just kind of narrow margins, but, you know, something I think 93 or 96 percent of all of the um, senators voting for it. It still hasn't passed the House yet, but um, just overwhelming bipartisan support. And when anyway, so the, the yeah, I probably should have ended it where where I left it off. But but then here they go and, and of bankers and there's too much regulation and, and we should be allowed to to, uh, to trade openly and freely. Um, and there's a perception, I think, that voluntary carbon markets are complex or are difficult to understand. Um, you know, can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how how voluntary carbon markets as you know, especially for voluntary um ag carbon markets are kind of leading the way to make things simple yeah i think you know and part one of the challenges here i just point out is that you know part of the reason um that they're complex is because there's very little guidance right now uh and there's a lot of different players with you know mixed sometimes overlapping messages around you know the way that things should work um, or, you know, the, the way that they've built out their methodologies. Uh, and you know, because of that, I think it, it creates quite a bit of confusion, right? So, you know, within the context of a voluntary carbon market, we have, um, you know, at this point, players out there that are sort of making their own definitions and coming to market with, you know, credits that they, de they deem to be, um, you know, credible. Uh, and then there are platforms um, or entities out there, NGOs, that specifically focus on facilitating this. So, you know, there are registries, uh, you know, Vera, Gold Standard, um, you know, Climate Action Reserve or CAR, they all do this. They, they create standards or protocols that are designed to help sort of, you know, demystify and, and, and uh, ensure that, you know, the credits that are being transacted are, are credible and they're valid uh, and that they've undergone a, a sufficient amount of uh, rigor and, and oversight so that, you know, people aren't getting boondoggled and purchasing something that's not real. And I think that's incredibly important to exist. Uh, and, you know, because of that, you know, because that we, we really need to, to, to define how valid uh, these credits are, prove it. In some cases, it's overly rigorous. And I think that, you know, the position we're in within agriculture right now is that, you know, our desire to ensure that, that these credits are valid is actually preventing in some say, in some ways the market from fully taking off. Right you hear now. that? 
Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that insane? The, be, because there's too many regulations, we can't, it's actually taken too long for these credits to be considered valid. And so therefore it, it is, it is more of a hindrance to help this global initiative of, of saving the planet. You, you want to play it back again? It, it is, it's quite phenomenal. Yeah. I thought he was going back and forth of like, there's not enough to get it going. No, I know. But then there's too much right. to like really like, mean, it l- is, allow it the, the room to it, grow. It is a babble. I mean, that, that is most of that record, that interview was pretty dog shit, but it was, it, it most of it was just, I mean, it, it's insane. I don't know. But I just, he was saying he was trying to simplify it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a simple plan. Right. I don't know. <laughs> Man, I hate to hear the complicated. I think that, you know, the position we're in within agriculture right now is that, you know, our desire to ensure that that these credits are valid is actually preventing in some say in some ways the market from fully taking off right now. And so, you know, as we sort of move into a space where perhaps there's more regulation or there's more, you know, sort of uh, government um, mandated uh, structure or definition, you know, that will help, I think, in some ways to find what will be acceptable in a way that doesn't. That he just wants the government to take it over and to define it for them. Because he's saying their their desire to make it credible, to have a standard Mm -hmm. for what defines the credit and makes it real that's what he said um limits the ability for it to actually happen but if they had a defined mandated government or un or whatever to define it and mandate it and set that but what are they setting it's just to make a standard so that doesn't make any sense i think it's a trial balloon yeah (laughs) i think they're putting up a trial balloon i think it's the government's behind it the government be. wants to regulate. They're just floating out different ideas. Yeah. That's my my theory. They're well, seeing which one picks up the most interest. <laughs> <laughs> well, right now, uh, Annette L. Uh, Nazareth is currently the chair of Integrating Council of Voluntary Carbon Market. Um, but she was also part of the SEC uh, Trade Commission in, between 05 and 08. So during, perfect. yeah, per- perfect timing of, of when uh, all those exchanges of real estate <laughs> sort of collapse of the, of the American economy. And she's, she's the one spearheading this, this sort of carbon trade market. I don't know, man. Yeah, it's, it is, it, 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 you, you hate your brain to go that way, but it is very, it, it sets up for a good scam to just suck money out of people yeah. in every format. It's a money suck. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, how else do they fund the five trillion dollars a year? <laughs> I I just don't know where they're going to pull that money off. But well, I mean, where they've been pulling it off the last few years? Well, per, decades. Jim's Jim's got a point in terms Fake of money. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, won't stop. Reprinting. It won't stop. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we uh, wrap this up? I just wanted to mention, just to kind of seal the deal on this whole thing associated between CO2 and warming, Mm -hmm. that um, in the journal Science in 2023, the British Royal Society published a um, study that, well, I don't know if it it was a collection of data analysis, right, found that the temperature on Earth began to rise before the increase in CO2 concentration in the atmosphere. And this is the reason... For the increase in CO two and not the other way around. Oh, that that go, that there goes the whole the whole argument then. Yeah, <laughs> that was twenty. Warming increases CO two, and yeah. most CO two comes from the ocean anyway. 
Not fossil fuels. <laughs> <laughs> Not fossil fuels. <laughs> wow. And that was 2023 that that came out. Mm. Wow. Well. Well. Okay. I think we proved your thesis. <laughs> huh. Well. Parts of it anyway, maybe. Parts of it. Parts of it. Yeah. 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 Not not the secretive kind. Well, yeah. That I mean, it's a big topic. Oh. It's a lot to talk about. It There's is. tons of evidence. There's tons of things to to show. Um, but thank you for being here. Thanks thank for, you having, for having, having me. Discussion. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for the, it was fun. For the few yeah. that stayed and listened long enough for this podcast, um, there you can certainly send us an email. Uh, Savannah, what is that email? That email is pleb to pleb dot podcast at gmail.com. P L E B the number two P L E B dot podcast at gmail.com. Um, or through any podcasting 2.0 apps uh, via any sort of boostergram. There is a comment section actually. I, I forgot about that. So I, oh. I will show it to you later uh, if I remember. Um, I can it, comment about the host. That's yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> How dry he was. <laughs> Only good stuff. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and there will be uh, in the show notes, we'll link probably those graphs. Um, and, uh, anything mentioned that we can find during this that was brought up. So, and yeah. also pleb to pleb dot at fountain, I believe, um, for any sort of boostergram message. That's how we'll receive it. Um, so I'll need to fix that wallet though. Cause it's, I logged off my phone oh. the whole, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> that is it. Um, yeah. Thanks yeah. for listening. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.